When I had left camp that morning, I had not expected so soon the result that was then taking place, and consequently was in rough garb. I was without a sword, as I usually was when on horseback on the field, and wore a soldier's blouse for a coat, with the shoulder straps of my rank to indicate to the army who I was. When I went into the house, I found General Lee. We greeted each other, and after shaking hands, took our seats. I had my staff with me, a good portion of whom were in the room during the whole of the interview. What General Lee's feelings were, I do not know. As he was a man of much dignity, with an impassable face, it was impossible to say whether he felt inwardly glad that the end had finally come, or felt sad over the result and was too manly to show it. Whatever his feelings, they were entirely concealed from my observation. But my own feelings, which had been quite jubilant on the receipt of his letter, were sad and depressed. I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly, and had suffered so much for a cause, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If you've never joined us before, congratulations. You're here to re-defeat the Confederacy with me and Bill and all the other blues still alive fighting the forever civil war. Uh, we, <laughs> we read books over 500 pages. Um, anything. We haven't read Sarah J. Moss yet, but I, I think we might someday. <laughs> Um, and we, we read it together, kind of hand-holding, and then we get together and talk about it. And when I say we talk about it, I, I really, for this podcast, uh, it's going to be a, a, a lot of Joel making Bill talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're really excited for this one. Um, we are reading the personal, we read, we already finished it, we read the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, and I should say the annotated <laughs> memoirs of U.S. Grant, because... Uh, by Elizabeth Samet, her edition, because the the footnotes are a big part of this text, <laughs> which we'll come we'll come to. But this is a huge text, an important part of American history. Obviously, you know Grant having been the victor of the Civil War and the president thereafter. But it's also like it's a it's a widely regarded literary phenomenon, big in its day and continuing to have a lot of literary relevance now. So this is going to be a good one, I think, Bill. A little different for us though. Um, you know, the good news is that you and I are both actual historians who <laughs> uh, <laughs> who have a lot of peer-reviewed work out there on the Civil War, and we, we, we know everything we're talking about. So if there are quibbles out there from what we say, we should just know that we know we're right, and we're not going to apologize for anything. Yeah, Joel and I definitely both have multiple PhDs in history, specifically focusing on the Civil War from many of our most <laughs> prestigious institutions. We're not just a pair of dilettantes sort of wandering our way through this thousand-page text. Uh, so, yeah, if uh, if you disagree with us, you're wrong. That's, uh, that's yeah. the only possible explanation. I'm I certainly not just <laughs> quoting Atun Shea Films YouTube to have all of my opinions. <laughs> well, classically, the good news is that the Civil War is a really simple subject. Yeah, you know, yeah, real easy. Uh, short, there straightforward. Been, <laughs> there hasn't been 150 years of, like, misinformation campaign on, you know, let's say the southern side of the, of the, of the cause. 
there definitely hasn't been any controversy over the period directly after it, or, you know, even recently, right? Civil War talk is on the decline, right, Bill? Oh, so yeah. Should be- no, it's really <laughs> an irrelevant war that doesn't have anything to do with our current situation. So even so if we do like- get something wrong, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I feel like politically, <sighs> no stakes. Historically, we're experts. This is going to be one for the books. Actually, it, it would be one for the books. We're really excited about this one. Um to that, to that end, though, I think we're going to have to do it a little differently. Um, we, we, we are actually probably quite bad about staying on subject to the book, but we like to pretend that like the book itself is what matters, and, and it is. But I think with this podcast, it'll almost be impossible not to try and have some history overview and some introductory stuff. Um, and actually, I kind of want to start, Bill, from the very um, maybe obvious standpoint of like um, U.S. Grant. He's cool again you know because i um the editor of the text that we have in front of us uh samet we're calling her samet she's a a scholar at um an english teacher at west point um who teaches on grant and we'll talk about her later but um but she points out that when grant died he was the most famous american in the world and then his reputation plummets and then it's been coming back for quite a while now but i want to talk about our moment specifically because i feel like grant has had a revival in the last 10 years 20 years that feels really um ongoing or you know specific to our moment and that that's correct right i mean it certainly appears correct to me i know that even when you and i were growing up in the early 2000s i think we didn't hear a lot about grant and what we did was a lot more of the sort of uh he was a drunk and he you know got a lot of his guys killed, and then he was a terrible president. And then in the time since then, and, and in academia before that, uh, that's that narrative has been changing. Uh, you can look at, this is obviously a very silly thing, but you can look at the uh, C-SPAN presidential rankings that they do every few years. Um, and for a long time, Grant was toward, at, the, at the very bottom. Not, not necessarily right. the absolute worst, but in the, like, the bottom five. Yeah. But in the 2021 rankings that they did, Grant moves all the way up to, I mean, not the top, and you know, there's no way he is, but like top you know, fifteen twenty. Uh, it doesn't actually have numbers for some reason, so I'd have to count, and I'm not going to do that. But you know, m- moves up a lot. So his his reputation has really changed, both as a general and as a president. Uh, but you can really track his reputation again. A- as Samet says, he's the most famous American in the in the world after the war and even after his presidency. He does this two year round the world tour after he's done being president, where he meets everybody. He meets Bismarck. He meets Victoria. He helps negotiate a land dispute between China and Japan. It actually doesn't work, but it's after he leaves that it falls apart. It's not like when he's there, they come to a resolution and then he leaves and it falls apart. But, you know, he's so well respected that he's, you know, he can go anywhere he wants. He can do anything he wants. Um, And, you know, when he he died, it was this massive funeral. I think it was one and a half million people, roughly, you know, in in New York. Uh, His pallbearers included Confederate and Union leaders. Uh, he actually still has, I believe it is still the largest mausoleum in the country, is Grant's tomb in New York. Um, so, you know, after the Civil War, he's hugely famous and hugely respected and hugely loved. And then uh, as the Lost Cause myth, which is the, no, 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 the Civil War was totally about states' rights, don't worry about slavery, and the, the South was fine, and at any rate, they were at any rate they were certainly equal participants and what a tragedy and and anyway black people shouldn't vote uh that (laughs) that a little little tag there just a little tag irrelevant to my other argument but just wanted to get that in there as well (laughs) william dunning definitely william dunning shoot i think it's william dunning oh god this is the thing i'm afraid of with this podcast yes william dunning Woo! killing it uh (laughs) william dunning starts the dunning school of 
historian starts at Columbia University, I believe, which, you know, tries to argue that Reconstruction was this, you know, terrible thing where, you know, illiterate black people were in charge and didn't know what to do, and the white carpetbaggers were coming and screwing up the South, and a bunch of other absolute nonsense like that, and they needed a villain, and so Grant was their villain. And so starting in the, you know, the early 20th century, Grant becomes vilified both as a general and as a president, and... Then in the last 20 or 30 years, starting in academia and moving out into popular consciousness, people have been like, hey, turns out maybe that's not true. And Grant is, at the very least, much more complicated than that. Um, my first interaction with sort of the rehabilitation of Grant came from ta Coates reading it, actually, reading this book, uh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And then when he before, before he left Twitter as the only successful logger offer of Twitter prior to the Elon yeah. Musk days, at least. It's true. It's true. Uh, he talked about how much he loved Grant. Um, a major popular change in this is when Ron Chernow, who famously wrote the Hamilton biography that became the basis for the musical that nobody saw. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So Chernow in about 2017 publishes a big book on Grant, which is a pretty explicitly, you know, defending Grant, trying to bring him back, his reputation back up book. Uh, he's not certainly the first person to do that. James McPherson, who wrote the battle cry of freedom and won the Pulitzer for it was certainly a pretty big fan of Grant. Um, he's not dead. He's still alive. He is a big fan of Grant. Um, and that was how I sort of first interacted with the rehabilitated Grant was hearing ta Coates talk about how great Grant was and saying, well, Coates is smart. Maybe I don't know enough about this guy. And then reading Chernow's book when I fell in love. So one thing we need to be very clear about is the popular consciousness on Grant is getting better. And also Bill Coberly loves Ulysses S. Grant. (laughs) And so that's, that's important to be out here. I am not a neutral objective reader of this book. This is like, you know, I'm, I'm finally getting to read the memoirs of one of my favorite people. So, well, um, and I, I I think the Ta-Nehisi Coates thing is actually really important because there, I, I, and I, we're not going to get into it at all, but um, when he was writing his blog, Coates, there, there was there was no more famous blogger basically working yeah. on at least, especially his his beat. You know, he wrote the fifteen thousand word essay on reparations that people read. It was like an entire you know Atlantic magazine basically just on his article. So he 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 was tied to a very kind of radical, and he still is politics at the time, especially. Um, and then for him to kind of come out like on Twitter, I mean, Samet, the editor of our you know annotated text here, even talks about the tweet where he says, "All right, that's it. I'm changing my avatar to Grant." You know, and um, and he, he's quoted on this book too. And like um, you know, this is like this is the probably this is probably the general interest edition of the Grant memoirs that you'll find. Uh, you know, if you're looking for one. And part of this quote, at least from his Atlantic blog, is actually on the cover and in the book. Um, Coates says, a Tanner's son, failing at so much, turned savior of his country, a slaveholder turned mass emancipator, the warrior transformed into a warrior poet, into the, last, into the last embracing the harebrained scheme of black immigration. Um, he just, I mean, he, I, it's, it's a really strong recommendation because I think Coates has such um, cultural and political cachet. But also it feels like Coates is a part of something bigger because literary weirdos, which I think Coates is in, <laughs> in the best sense, they've always loved Grant. Like Gertrude yeah. Stein and Sherwood Anderson, who's one of my favorite writers, they they always talked about how Grant was the man for them and Lincoln was nothing. You know, And that's, that's just when Grant is still like in tatters reputationally. Um, 
but I do, I mean, I do think, I mean, I, again, I have no real interest in litigating some of the, 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 the bigger abstract themes just because I'm not knowledgeable enough, but from like a very personal, you know, standpoint of being educated in the U.S., I think most people have their own take on this. Like, you know, I, I remember if you learning about the civil war throughout school and I, I certainly wasn't taught anything about like how, you know, the South was right or was fighting a just cause. But if you asked me who were the best generals, in the um, Civil War, they're all Southerners, right? You would list um, Lee, maybe, that that stopped, but definitely Longstreet, right? The Killer Angels is basically a way to recuperate Longstreet's reputation as a, as a strategist of brilliance, you know, brilliant strategist. So, but, but I, I, and that's not, again, those generals were maybe impressive and yada yada, but there's a way in which, like, even being taught about, I think, the Civil War, what I would call correctly, again, we're biased, we don't care, um, <laughs> You know, but I think even being taught about Civil War correctly, there was still this imbalance of personality, right? Lee, especially, the hagiography around Lee, first of all, it's still intact in some places, but it has been a long-lasting, I think, shadow he's cast over Grant, in my opinion. Um, but, but so, and so in that sense, it does feel like this book is more relevant than ever. Um, and maybe will be ever relevant because, um, it, it is itself as the editor talks about a project of demystifying the civil war and specifically kind of cutting through all the bull crap, the romanticism, the, as Mark Twain calls it, the Walter Scottization of the South. He is explicitly cutting through that, you know, only a few decades after it happens as he's dying, which we'll come to. But I, it's a it's a powerful book, I think, because it still feels relevant to demystifying certain elements of our national identity, um, at least. And that's why I think Tanahase Coates tapped into, to be honest. He really kind of got to that core of like our identity is something we partly choose based on what we honor. And let's let's start honoring different things. Not that Grant was perfect. Not that he should be like you know one of the revered idols of America in the sense that there should be no idols. But I do think that his rehabilitation is 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 a helpful at least is a helpful project for me. Um, I don't know if for anyone else, but definitely for me. Um, okay, but let's 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 turn. To, I think we have to. We're gonna talk about the book a lot, but talking about the book is talking about the man, <laughs> you know? And I, I do think um, there's stuff that he leaves out, but I, I thought Bill in this, in this, the most Bill of Bill podcasts. <laughs> um, let's, can you just, let's get us, get us, get us the fact sheet. What's, what's going on? When's he born? What's his deal as far as like, this is Grant, where is he from? So forth, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, the memoirs, first of all, just to be clear, they, they don't go through his whole life. The memoirs stop right after the civil war for a very, discrete, uh, clear reason I'll get to in a moment. Um, but I'm going to just sort of briefly talk about who U.S. Grant was. <clears throat> so Hiram Ulysses Grant, which is his actual birth name, uh, because his life is why full of hilarious he, jokes. Why did he drop the Hiram? I, I, who would drop the Hiram, you know? Do you, do you actually not know this part? <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'll explain that in a moment. But Hiram Ulysses Grant was born on April 27th, 1822, which means we are actually recording this podcast uh, 200 years to the year, not the date, but 200 years after he was born. So that's fun. Um, he's the son of a tanner. Uh, they're certainly not, you know, dirt poor, but they don't really have a lot of money. His family are pretty rabid abolitionists. Grant actually isn't exactly for most of his life, uh, although he is still not a slave guy. Uh, what a terrible thing to say, but we're just going to have to talk about this <laughs> yeah. bluntly. Um, he ends up going to West Point basically because his dad bullies him into it. He doesn't really want to go. There's a great bit in the memoirs where he talks about how he's excited to take the train ride out there, 
because he wants to see the country, but he's really hoping there'll be a railroad accident so he doesn't get to go. <laughs> yeah, he's funny. Uh, you know, he's, he's genuinely funny. He's very funny. When he got to West Point, he discovered his name was incorrectly listed as U.S. Grants rather than H.U. Grants, and uh, he was faced with either just dealing with that or waiting to go back the next year. So that's why he became Ulysses S. Grant. The S doesn't stand for anything. Uh, while at West Point, he does fine. You know, he's sort of an average student in most most ways. Um, he's hoping to leave after his four-year commitment and become a professor of mathematics, but instead the Mexican-American War breaks out. So he goes there and fights the Mexican-American War, which he hates. Yep. He uh, calls it a terribly wicked war, but does what he believes is his duty and also his literal job and goes and fights anyway. Uh, primarily as a quartermaster, although he does have a couple of fun action hero moments we might talk about later. Uh, after the war, he marries... And one of his West Point buddies' sister, Julia Dent. The Dent family are slaveholders, um, which really annoys Grant's family. They actually, his parents don't come to the wedding. Um, he stays in the Army until 1854, working in various different places before resigning under mysterious circumstances, which is probably because he was drinking too much. It's actually not entirely clear, but that's probably what right. happened. Uh, is he, he was, he was, he'd become an alcoholic because he was separated from his family, working primarily in San Francisco. Which was not a very which fun would place to make be anyone become an alcoholic. To be honest, I mean, yeah, I've, we're gonna have to talk more I've about that later. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so he goes to live with Julia and the kids, um, and has a pretty rough time. Uh, all of his business ventures fail. Um, he ends up farming some of his father-in-law's land, uh, which includes him actually, therefore, having to be in charge of a group of slaves, which he doesn't actually own. Uh, he's uh, really not very happy about it, but it's his father-in-law. You know, he can't do anything about it. Uh, but he doesn't make it doesn't make a very good go of it. We'll talk about this in a moment later. He does at some point in the late 1850s actually acquire legal title to one man, William Jones. The only thing we know about William Jones really is that Grant freed him in 1859 at a time when he couldn't really afford to be letting go of such a valuable piece of property, which is a horrible way to think about it. But of course, it's how people were thinking at the right. time. So the only person that Grant actually owned himself uh he did free uh it's not clear exactly how quickly but something like a year after he got him um uh at the time the the civil war breaks out he is working as a clerk as a junior clerk for his father uh and really having a rough time but he signs back up for the army when the war breaks out uh and then everything after that is Incredible. So, literally, he starts out as a colonel of a regiment of Illinois volunteers, pretty much immediately gets promoted to brigadier general, because the North needs every general they can find, uh, wins a small battle in Belmont, Missouri, and then uh, wins two very important battles in northern Tennessee at Forts Henry and Donelson at a time when the North wasn't winning any battles of import, uh, therefore getting promoted to major general. Uh, he goes down in Tennessee and fights a terribly bloody battle at Shiloh in southwestern Tennessee, uh, which is, at the time, the bloodiest battle in the Civil War. It's still one of, I think it's the sixth bloodiest battle in the Civil War total, but at the time, nobody could believe how horrible it was. Um, there's a lot of controversy about Shiloh, so Grant kind of gets exiled to not having a direct command, but after a while, he does get back in charge because nobody else is competent, and he uh, embarks on his legendary campaign against Vicksburg, Mississippi, We'll talk more about it later, but the Vicksburg campaign is, as I understand it, and I'm not a military tactician, historian, whatever, but everyone I know who talks about Vicksburg, no matter what they like say about Grant, says it's brilliant, where we'll get into what happened exactly, but he ends up taking Vicksburg, Mississippi, and therefore cutting off all Confederate control of the Mississippi River on July 4th, 1863, the same time that Gettysburg's happening, so that was a good day for the Union. 
um, fights some stuff in Tennessee, particularly in Chattanooga, and then Lincoln, uh, who has been trying and failing to find anybody to run the Eastern Theater, gone gone through four generals, four or five, and they've all done a terrible job. Appoints, puts, uh, promotes Grant to lieutenant general and puts him in charge of everything. Grant then proceeds to uh, conduct the entire Civil War personally in the Eastern Theater, and he orders everybody else what to do, engages in a terribly bloody series of battles against Robert E. Lee in Virginia in what's called the Overland Campaign. We'll talk more about that later, but it's it's a lot. It's several months of just constant, terribly bloody fighting. The most thing, important thing we need to mention here includes a uh, one of his biggest mistakes, which is an attack at Cold Harbor, which doesn't really get them anything and gets a lot of his guys yeah. killed for no particularly compelling reason. Uh, ultimately invests Petersburg, south of Richmond, stays there for a very long time in a siege in basically World War One era fighting, while which exists partly to bottle up Lee and stop him from doing anything, particularly what that's important because it stops Lee from screwing around with Grant's very good friend, William Tecumseh Sherman, who at this point is marching all around Georgia and the Carolinas, smashing things, <laughs> as he put it. Um, <laughs> uh, ultimately, Lee eventually leaves the Petersburg-Richmond area in 1865, Grant surrounds him and forces him to surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, and the war is essentially over. Uh, we'll talk briefly about what happens after that. After the war, uh, Grant serves as general of the army under uh, President Johnson, and then runs for and is elected president in two terms, uh, 68 and 72, so he's president from 69 to 77. The terms are messy. They're not in the book, so we're not going to talk about them too much. Uh, there's a lot of corruption scandals during Grant's presidential administration none of which implicates him but does sort of implicate his taste in friends if that makes right. sense um he is the only president to take reconstruction seriously he does a lot of work against the ku klux klan and that's a lot of the reason why his presidential terms are being reevaluated. um he his native american policy is complicated and we're not going to get into it because it's not what the book is about it's simultaneously better than all of his predecessors and still very bad <laughs> uh but after the presidency, he goes on his two-year round-the-world tour, like I said. Comes back, runs for the president a third time, but loses in the primary to James Garfield, who then just gets shot and dies, which isn't his fault, really, but, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It was actually really bad. His, the doctors actually killed Garfield, is the horrible thing. He probably would have survived the wound, but they did a really bad job operating on him. But anyway, uh, Grant then goes into business with a guy named Ferdinand Ward, who is, as Ron Chernow puts it, the Bernie Madoff of his day, and steals all of Grant's money and the money of a lot of other people, yeah. leaving Grant in penury towards the end of his life. So in 1884, uh, just when things couldn't get worse, Grant discovers he has inoperable throat cancer, which is going to kill him, and so says, well, I gotta do something, and the only thing I can think of to make some money for my family in the next five minutes is to write my memoirs, which Civil War memoirs were incredibly popular. Almost everybody wrote one. Uh, Grant decides to finally do it, even though he didn't kind of want to. He originally is going to work with, I think it's Century Magazine, and they're going to pay him 10%. Uh, and then Mark Twain literally shows up at his house and says, what are you doing? <laughs> you're the most, you're one of the most famous people in the world, and you're going to write these memoirs for 10%? No, you're going to write them with me, and I'm going to give you 70%, and we're going to sell them by subscription, and it's going to keep your family out of trouble. Yep. Yeah. So Grant works his just absolute tail off to write this book. Uh, as towards the end, he can't even talk. Eating and drinking is incredibly excruciating. He finishes the book on July 18th, 1885, and dies five days later on July 23rd, 1885. Um, the memoirs were a huge success. They sold something like 300,000 copies in the first year in 1885. 
or 86, I guess, when they came out, which is incredible. Uh, and they saved his family from poverty, and um, here we are. So that's a probably a more detailed than I was supposed to do summary, but it is still pretty high level. Uh, the big things again: Grant, Mexican-American War, fails out of the army, goes to the Civil War, fights at Henry and Donelson, does a masterful campaign at Vicksburg. Before that, I should say, has a rough time at Shiloh, then takes over the army, fights an incredibly bloody series of battles in Virginia, wins. That's the stuff we really need to talk about for this. Well, and, so. oh, let, and let, let's be clear, like that 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 was in the weeds a, a little bit, but if that if that's too much Civil War information, this is going to be a rough podcast. <laughs> 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 for, especially because I mean, truly, that part of the charm of Grant, which will come to his pros later. I don't want to get into it now. But um, part of his charm is um, his details, that he is an essentializer. He wants to tell you exactly what happened in blunt terms. He, he is a genuinely good writer, I think. And I think he has a really American instinct when it comes to prose. Like he falls into a certain lineage, I think, with other essentializers. Um, I mean, the hated, it seemed, or the seemingly hated Hemingway, I think, falls into the lineage of Grant, to be honest. Um, you know, say it shorter kind of a mentality. But... All I have to say is um, he, he does he, he really takes pains to be precise and I, I think it's what, what, what kind of what kind of can become a blur at times is how how many numbers he gives you or how many details he gives you and especially if you're not a visual person you don't know the area he's talking about it certainly can overwhelm but it also it's part of what it's so impressive you know you know he's writing this as he's dying right like he's <laughs> like and, and you know he some of this he wrote beforehand but like his command of what happened and his commitment to telling it, you know, precisely is, is kind of in a weird way, charming, you know, like watching your grandpa fix the car, um, <laughs> but better. So before we, before we get into Grant too much and, 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 you know, some of his other, you know, traits as a general or whatever, things, things coming. I actually do want to pause on the Mexican American war um, his involvement, but also generally, um, because it does seem like one of those wars which is continually overlooked, right? You know, the War of 1812. There, there are wars in American history that, like, I feel like just are never going to be as um, focused on, sometimes for good reason and sometimes because there's only so much real estate of attention. But Grant himself at one point says, um, the Southern Rebellion was largely the outgrowth of the Mexican War. Nations, like individuals, are punished for their transgressions. We got our punishment in the most sanguinary and expensive war of modern times. So he's talking on a spiritual level here a little bit, but also he, I think he means it in a more practical way. And, um, and I, I don't know about you, but I, I actually, one of the things that came away from this book was that I, uh, I kind of wanted to read more about the Mexican War, to be honest. I kind of wanted to know more about it because I think that one of... Um, the more interesting sections in the beginning part is definitely him talking about the countryside and talking about his interaction with the people. And apparently, like, he went on vacation in Mexico several times after the Mexican-American War. You know what I mean? Like, he really liked Mexico. And um, But that statement itself I found fascinating because... Um, it seems it seems to it seems similar to like Lincoln in a second inauguration talking about like the original sin of America is slavery and we have to pay for that with this war. It seems similar to that, but I'm just curious if if that gripped you at all the Mexican American War part, or if you kind of um, wanted to get to the juicy bits more. 
No, in some ways, actually, the Mexican-American War stuff is some of my favorite stuff in yeah, the book. Yeah, same, actually. Um, <laughs> it's actually him at his most... It's more. It's the most like a memoir, right? Yeah. So one thing that a lot of people have talked about about this book is Grant actually... He's super sort of closed off about giving you a lot of his personal emotions, right? This book is not full of, and then I wept or anything right, like that. Right, right. And to some extent, when he's talking about the Mexican-American War, I think it's far enough away, and he wasn't in charge of much. Yeah. Right? I think he's allowed, he's able to give you a little more of himself in that, right? There's a lot more sort of funny anecdotes about, you know, him screwing up, like he valiantly charges the enemy line to discover that everyone there is already dead because somebody has already charged this line. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he's like, eh, all right. <laughs> uh, you know, and he, he has a lot of these sort of demythologizing moments. And I, again, I also appreciate how he he really does seem to love the Mexican countryside. And, you know, he, he doesn't interact with the Mexican people too much, but he seems to like them too. And he, you know, he, he talks about what happened in the different generals who were in charge and the difference between Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott and so on. And it's, it's a little bit more personal than the rest of the book, I think, until the very, very that, end. That's a great... No, you're right. That is part of the charm is he does let his guard down a little bit. And I, I enjoyed that part a lot. And I also enjoyed that he doesn't... You know, he says, yeah, this is one of the wickedest wars that's ever been fought. Like, he doesn't hide his opinion about how it was just a terrible naked uh, land grab that not only took a lot of land from people who didn't... You know, we didn't have any claim to, but then also, of course, which it was, was a deliberate attempt to extend the slave power uh, in the United States right. and to continue the South's control over the federal government. Um, but it was about states' rights, man. Don't, don't worry. It was about states' rights. <laughs> well, the South certainly hadn't spent the last, you know, however many years trying to use the federal government to... Anyway, I'm going to try not to do too much of that. I, you, well, I mean, <laughs> keep, bring it on, my man. Seriously. But uh, I, well, I think you're right about the the most... It, it being the most kind of memoir-like part, which also involves battles. Because you get some other memoir stuff a little bit here and there. But he does linger on the Mexican-American War because it's important to the Civil War. Like, he kind of... It, it allows him to kind of take his time, I think the relevance but you get little nice anecdotes like he and some other officers on the way out like like, like they've won right they've like you know conquered <laughs> mexico basically which by the way i think sometimes i forget like i actually didn't know this but i i forget that like they go to mexico city you mean like they you know like it's yeah. it's not sort of a we fought over texas they, they go in deeply to mexico um and and yet on the way out um he and his friends they want to go sightseeing <laughs> <laughs> and they're like they're like passing through like a Mexican garrison or something, and the Mexicans are like, "No, you can't, <laughs> you can't go sightseeing. <laughs> like, get out of here." <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not quite that. I just, but it was, it was honestly, it it, it felt so much like um the mo in modern day warfare. You know, when you go on a tour for ten to twelve months, it's like if you're like a normal sort of you know you know non commissioned officer or whatever. If you're a normal soldier of some kind, navy whatever, um, you get like a break, right? You get like a two week break at some point in, the, in your tour. And a lot of these guys like go to, you know, they go to Italy, they go to Thailand, they, you know, some of them come home if they have families, but if you're young enough, you, you usually go somewhere fun. And so it's this really weird juxtaposition where one moment you're in war and the next moment you're sightseeing. And for me, it was, it was, it was really, I guess, moving in some ways, how often that happened in this book. Um, that his, his kind of his recollection of war or his recollection of battle or whatever, it feels so relevant. And Samet, the editor, does a great job of kind of trying to articulate the ways in which this this book remains relevant because it has kind of this, you know, um, ongoing conversation 
happening with other war literature, right? That like Julius Caesar by Shakespeare or Caesar's own, um, you know, actual memoirs to Tim O'Brien in Vietnam. She's kind of constantly throwing these things together as a way to talk about wars, wars weirdly overlapping relevance, no matter what era it's in. And so for me, I, I did think the, the Mexican war part, partly because of also the kind of war it was invading another country kind of for, let's say terrible reasons. Um, it feels really relevant to the um, Iraq-Afghanistan wars. Um, but also, it, it was just, he was he was more open. That definitely, I think, is why it's charming. Well, it's also interesting because almost everybody who's an important officer in the Civil War fought in the Mexican-American War on the same yeah. side, yep. right? And so, like, his trip to, his trip you're talking about included, he, he, one of his buddies was uh, Simon Bolivar Buckner. Yep who is the guy who's going to surrender to him at Fort Donelson, you know, Longstreet, who's, as you said, one of the great civil war generals who has been unfairly disparaged because he, uh, didn't like Robert yeah, Lee didn't as much like Lee, and yeah. then co- <laughs> cooperated with the federal forces after the civil war and actually, uh, waged some battles in Louisiana against, you know, reconstruction era rebels. Um, He's complicated. We're not going to talk about Longstreet. It doesn't matter. But like Longstreet <laughs> was actually one of Grant's basically groomsmen, right? Yeah. I don't think they called yeah, him yeah. that, but one of the guys who stood up next to Grant at his wedding. Um, so these guys all knew each other, and a lot of them were pals. Um, Robert E. Lee was quite a bit older than Grant, but he and Grant had met at least once during the Mexican-American War. And, you know, Grant talks about remembering studying him and thinking about that such that when he's surrendering at Appomattox in 65... Uh, they actually spend the first like 20 minutes of the conversation just reminiscing about the war. <laughs> yeah, well, and, it, <laughs> and other it's, stuff. Well, and it's why the um, the West Point chapter or chapters also feels really important to me because West Point is still a small community, right? It's still like 4,000 cadets and they all kind of know each other, at least by reputation. And I, I do think that um, the long gray line is its own myth and its own kind of you know myth making that's ongoing. But the, the West Point singularity, the way in which it's unique and the way in which it throws these future leaders together, it is a weirdly small community. And it was even smaller than in the 19th century. I and mean, the whole country was small. You know, the population was drastically smaller than we think of it as. And so he has these two touchstones, Mexican War and West Point, that make make him acquainted intimately with several of his combatants. And I think that's familiarity is often used to kind of romanticize the civil war, which again, Samet talks about, and I want to talk about later, but, um, but I do think there is a reality going on. Like that is, it's hard not to romanticize it actually, because it is bizarre. I mean, like, like honestly, like these people, it's as if you and I went to war, right? It's as if you literally, you and I were fighting the Colorado war on different sides. And I, I think that's hard not to kind of get caught up in like the, um, you know, kind of just the, you know, not, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's a hard idea to resist, you know, playing out romantically or in a, in a in a silly maudlin way, you know. But at the same time, I think Grant does a really good job with it, um, which we'll, we'll come back to. But so so those I feel like those are two very important parts: the Mexican War and the West Point part. Um, but I I actually I always really this happened when we read. Um, Witness by Whitaker Chambers, where like you know the books about communism and all these other drastically huge events. But I'm always I'm always really charmed by. Um, these like growing up stories, no matter how short they were, especially because you go back 50, 60 years and from then backwards, these people were all like wild animals. <laughs> 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 and, like, and, and, well, and 
honestly, like, I'm jealous of this. You know what I mean? Like, it's definitely one of my own, like, romantic problems is, like, they always talk about being outside and doing these insane things, like him, you know, going to town and buying horses when he's 15 or whatever. Um, it's similar to, I think, Whitaker Chambers talking about roaming the countryside, which was just Long Island or whatever back in the day. And so I, 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 I do think that even though it's, it's the most rote part of the book, even his childhood stuff I found, I found weirdly ingratiating, to be honest, or you know, whatever, endearing maybe is a better word. But was there anything else about that kind of early section that stood out to you? I mean, I, I do love this. He, he talks about how the story isn't quite right, but the famous story about Grant at like 14 trying to buy a horse and the guy wants $25 for the horse. And so he talks to his dad and says, the guy wants $25. And his dad says, no, 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 no. Go to him and offer him 20. And if he doesn't take that, offer him 22 and a half. And if he doesn't take that, offer him 25. And the story is that Grant walked up to him and said, my dad says I'm supposed to offer you 20. And then if you won't take that, to offer you <laughs> 22 right. and a half. And then if you won't take that, to offer him 25. And Grant says that story's not quite true, but it, it's it's sort of close. Uh, and it's it's such a sort of a funny thing. Uh, it, and then that story, I think, deals with a lot of what he's trying to do in this book. It deals with him sort of making fun of himself, which he does a fair amount. It does it deals with him sort of establishing himself as kind of a straight shooter, which is a literary technique he does in the book, right? He, yeah. And, and this is from the article you posted. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's correct, right? That uh, Grant is... One of the things Grant is doing in the first portion of the book before the Civil War is trying to make you trust him. Yes. Right? Uh, to establish himself as a straight shooter who's not very good at, you know... He's good at deceit in war, right? But he's not good at, like, deceiving people when he's talking to them. Uh but also him attacking the mythology, right? Oh, because yeah. the story had gotten around such that people would tried to were making fun of him for it. Other people were praising him for it, saying he was just such a honest guy. And he said, "Well, first of all, it's not quite what happened." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, so I think that story ends up being a, a sort of an important early mark of what the rest of the book is going to do. And it happens, I don't know, eighty pages in, something well, like that. I, I, so um, I think similarly. Um... Samet, the editor of this, and who does all the annotations, she has this great phrase um, in a different anecdote he tells, where she says, "Like Lincoln, Grant can tell a story on himself. You know, he knows how to use self-deprecation to be charming, which I think is really vital when you're the most famous American in the world, right? Like, what's more charming?" the most famous person in the world who beat the South sort of talking about how in this one anecdote, he thinks that the howling of two wolves will be 20 wolves, right? It's one of the funnier stories where he and someone are riding together in the plains. And this guy's like from, I don't know, I can't remember, like Indiana or something where they have wolves. And, um, the guy asks Grant, you know, hey, you hear those wolves howling? How many wolves do you think there are? And Grant's like, well, I, I give him a low number. So I guessed no more than, you know, 20 <laughs> or 40. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the guy laughs at him and they get there and it's two wolves. And it's it's a pretty good punchline. But I, I think that um, Samet's correct that he, he, he does use this to endear himself. But also, I, what's hard for me, I guess, and this is where you and I are probably biased, I mean, it's kind of hard. I I guess I I fell for it is what I'm saying. I kind of fell for it. You know, like even though it's like I, I Sam is describing how like this is a you know classic rhetorical device he's using, and he's like Lincoln where he knows how to use it to his benefit or whatever. Part of me was still kind of like, yeah, but I do trust him now. <laughs> I do like him. Yeah, you know what I mean? like it yeah, works. Yeah, like honestly, it was like <laughs> the wolf story is a great story. Like I I know people in my life just tell stories like that, and almost all of them I would trust. You know, I would trust to be a leader. Um, Anyway, but I think he—I think a lot of the style of the book is also established early on, and it—and it's really nice because in the Civil War sections, he gets so in the details, and then every now and then he'll pop his head up and like look at the reader and address, you know, 
how horrible the cause of slavery was for reasons that are maybe a little different than you would think even. And it, and, and once he assumes that tone, you know, like you, you love it, right? You kind of like fall into it immediately because it was so enjoyable at the first part of the book. Absolutely. So, okay. Well, that's, that's, I mean, if you have anything else to add about his early life, you know, th- throw it out there. But I, I, I think we, we, I mean, the book is, the book is the civil war, right? That is this, the book is yeah. the civil war. Everything else is prelude or proscript. It's, you know, it, it is, it is interesting on, and, and worthwhile on its own, but he, he definitely knows what the reader wants and the reader wants the civil war. So Bill, did we have a civil war? <laughs> Sorry. We did. <laughs> well, what was it about? What happened? Yeah. So the civil war was about slavery and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Um, I, I don't know exactly what you're no, asking. No, you know, no, Joel, no, no. You, you... <laughs> I think we need to transition to he. Um, so he has this, you know, interesting war experience. He has kind of a failed business time, and then the war breaks out. How does he become part of the war? And you can talk about the inner period as well if you want to. But I, I am like, I do think it's it, it is a bizarre transition from like civilian to now. Even in the book, it's a really hard jump cut where he's like, oh, I was doing some things, and then the war broke out, and he's pretty quickly. He's pretty quickly in in the midst of it, it seems like. Yeah, I think it's two chapters he spends with the book on his inner war life. And that's because it was bad. It was a rough time. Um, He definitely, and we'll maybe talk more about this later, but he became an alcoholic if he wasn't already. But he certainly cemented himself as an alcoholic uh, when he was in the army before he went home. Still struggled with it some when he was at home, although less than when he was away from his family in California when anybody would... Well, I guess we'll, let's go ahead and talk about this. Let's talk about the alcoholism thing. Should we do that? Yeah, Cause, no, please. Because I'm going to do it. So throughout the Civil War, um, the rumors surrounding Grant was that he was an enormous drunkard, right? And various people would write reports to Lincoln or, or Stanton or Halleck. Stanton was the Secretary of War. Halleck was the general who was above Grant for much of the war, saying, Grant's an enormous drunkard, right? And it, the stories are, like, not completely true, right? So I... One big thing that Ron Chernow is doing in his biography, which is my primary source, obviously none of this is independent research I've done. Uh, <laughs> this is all just me aping Ron yeah. Chernow, uh, is that Grant was what we would call an alcoholic, but he was an occasional binge drinker that, you know, two or three times a year, he would just go off the deep end. And the big problem with Grant was he couldn't hold his liquor. Um, he'd have two or three drinks and then get real sloppy, um, such that. A lot of people at the time who were a little more honest said that Grant probably drinks less than most of the other officers here. It's just that when he drinks, he can't control it, he can't stop it, and he immediately becomes a mess. Uh, this became a... Again, another thing about this is it's always hard to separate fact from fiction yeah. because there's a lot of rumors and myths around everything in the Civil War, but particularly around Grant's drunkenness because, uh, frankly, a lot of the people who wrote letters back east saying Grant's a drunk were angling for his job. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, a lot of the people who specifically try to call attention to this were, were, were let's say, not disinterested observers. Um, and so it's probably true that he quit the army in 54 because he was drinking too much. There's enough evidence, as I understand it, from from letters and things Grant had said when he was being more open about it, that he, he had become an alcoholic at that point. And it was starting to affect his, his work. Um, he struggled with it until about the end of the Civil War. Um, he actually appears to have pretty much beaten it before by the time he's president, um, which according to Chernow, and I have no reason to disbelieve him. Uh, several times in the Civil War, he did go on a bender, but it was always, as Chernow puts it, when he was 
it was after a battle. It was never before one, right? It was a time when he didn't have anything to do, right. really. When he was somewhere else away from his army, um, like reviewing something in a nearby town. And when neither his wife nor his very good friend John Rollins were there. John Rollins was an aide to Grant throughout the war. And uh, one of his jobs was to make sure Grant didn't drink. And he was really good at it. Uh, Grant <laughs> didn't drink very much anymore. I mean, I, we can all relate. Um, you know, we can all relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a few times, like there's one time during the Vicksburg campaign, during the siege. So he's already done his great move through Mississippi, but the city's been invested and he's just waiting, basically. Right. Uh, he goes up to, I think it's Sertertia. A nearby town and gets drunk on the way and that story gets exaggerated by a journalist who wasn't actually on the trip <laughs> who reports about it but it's pretty clear that he did get drunk at some point there he probably got drunk after cold harbor and so on what's interesting i think about this sort of myth about grant as a drunkard is how much i think to our 21st century eyes none of this feels like that big a deal yeah yeah <laughs> um you know i think in our sort of binge drinking culture that we have and i mean to be clear i'm definitely a participant uh you know having a terrible battle going somewhere where you don't have to do anything and getting hammered feels like about right i think to most of us you know i don't i don't know if i trust a man who doesn't drink an entire bottle of whiskey after cold well I, I, mean, um, I was gonna say i mean i i've i've, I've actually literally um had drinks with soldiers who are getting off the plane you know, back from iraq you know, iraq kuwait germany but you know they're getting off the plane from that trip back and yeah, I mean, we we drank. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that was the only thing anyone wanted to do besides, like you know, hug and talk a little bit. Is we we drank, and uh, I, I I do think though, and I, but I think that that was also true in the Civil War. Like you'd mentioned, everyone's you know, I, I this is this is my at least. I mean, I don't have any extra information. I didn't do as much research as you did, but everyone's drinking. You know what I mean? And so I I do find it. I, I guess I don't think you can you know you can delve this deep because that would be truly scholarly research but i find it fascinating that it, it attaches itself to grants you know what i mean and i i do think it's one of those quirks of being an important person right is that um you get this narrative that precedes you and it's really hard to to walk out of that narrative to the point that again I, i'm pretty sure one of my few recollections from like APUS history was that Grant ended up being an impressive general, but he was a drunkard. Like that's what I would have told you, you know? And so I, yeah. and, and you know, <laughs> we're literally two year, 200 years after his birth. We're precise, you know, precisely 200 years and like six months or whatever it is right after his birth. And that's, that story is still ongoing, which I find, I find almost incredible to be honest. Um, but overall, but I do think that's one of the debunking parts of his narrative though, that overall people, basically historians of Grant have said, it happened, but actually that even within the context of the time, it maybe wasn't as big of a deal as it's been made out to be. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah, I mean, as you said, everybody drank a lot at this time frame. There were soldiers in the Civil War who got drunk, and it was a problem, right? I mean, Joe Hooker drank a lot. I can't remember his name, but one of the colonels who was supposed to lead the attack at the Battle of the Crater was drunk during the battle, which is one reason why that failed so hard. Um but, you know, Grant would drink when there was, he didn't have anything important to do and there was nobody around and he was away from his army. Right. But again, because the myth had pre pre preceded him and because it had been, I think, a bigger problem in the early 1850s, uh, what would happen is, again, he'd get sloppy and somebody would see him and be like, oh, God, there's Grant falling off his horse right. again, you know. And so it continued this narrative. But, you know, it's also important to remember this is 1861 through 1865, right? I mean, this is the Victorian era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit silly to call America the, but I mean, People are very moralistic about this totally. kind of thing. Uh, anyway, he, he had a real problem with alcohol. It was definitely alcoholism. It wasn't just that he drank too much a few right. times. But it was 
much more complicated than the narrative of him being a drunkard. What I think is most interesting about this in relation to this book we read, rather than just me opining about U.S. Grant, is that he doesn't mention it even a little bit anywhere in the book. There is not a single word in the text of the book about Grant drinking too much. Um, which is an interesting choice, because he actually, he did talk about it sometimes uh, when he was talking to people, right? He had preached, uh, pre preached is kind of the right word, at some temperance society meetings, you know. He, he would talk about it under certain circumstances, but he just didn't talk about it at all in the memoir. Uh, Twain, Twain apparently kicked himself for not making him do it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, I, w I was going to say, it actually is interesting because he does go out of his way a few times with regard to battles or decisions um, to sort of justify himself, right? That he does kind of acknowledge the public record or the, or the public slant, as he probably would call it, and he goes out of his way to sort of correct the record, right? And I actually, one of the yeah. reasons I had this on the list to ask you, you're right, I had it on the list to ask you because I knew the reputation, the footnotes talk about it now and then, but he himself is silent, which is one of the few areas he chooses to be silent on. Um, there's definitely more areas we could get into, but I, I, I it's def, it's obviously like a salient part of his reputation, and he just is bum on it, which I think is, you know, I don't know. I, I think it would have been better to talk about it, but at the same time, like, I you know, I don't know. I can't blame the guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough because it followed him his whole life. And, you know, people were <laughs> making editorial cartoons in his 1880 run about him, like, stumbling drunkenly from a second, you know, lamppost labeled term right. to a third lamppost labeled. Because, you know, this is eight, 19th century editorial cartoons. <laughs> if you think our editorial cartoons now aren't subtle. Oh, boy. I, you know, I so like how they label him. things so you're just really clear. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I got it. <laughs> and long masses of text at the bottom. Yeah, that's my yeah, favorite yeah. thing about 19th century editorial cartoons. There's like a whole paragraph. It's better when you joke. explain the joke. That's cla That's been true since the dawn of time. Uh, but anyway, and I think it was just too painful for him to talk yeah. about. And he was dying and he didn't want to. And I, you know, I, I think the important thing to remember about the whole book is this wasn't a book he wrote after 20 years of thinking about it and deciding to write it for 10 years. It's a book he wrote in like eight months as he was dying yeah, of horrible throat right. cancer. And I don't, as you say, I think it would be a better book if he talked about it. I think it would have been more honest and more, I mean, he didn't lie about it. He didn't say, no, no. Frank, right. But I also, as you say, I cannot blame the guy. Like what, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where like, it is one of the parts of, of his reputation. It, it's hard to think of anything he could say that wouldn't fuel the fire. Right. Um, yeah. but let's, 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 let, let's try and So he's, so, but I will say, so he's floundering, right? He's basically floundering, not as bad as he will be later in the eighties, but he's kind of floundering and the civil war starts. That's accurate. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, cause it seems correct. like basically when there's not a war going, he flounders. <laughs> that's kind of his life. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, I mean, it's a little more complicated no, than that, but like with the white house, but I mean, it's not wrong. It's, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but up to this point, you know, he, he really is having a hard time. He's, like, working in his father's store, I believe, or something. Yep. Um, that's the last thing he's doing. He does a lot of things. Right, that's, that's the last, last thing he does. Yep. And and then and then it's time for, for war. And so I, 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 I always am interested in, in like, in wartime stuff because you do have this basically um, this complementary uh, force, right? You have the volunteers. But he kind of gets into it in a weird way, doesn't he? Like, I, I, I'm trying to remember the details where he volunteers to do some stuff and then he kind of, like, gets more and more involved, at least at first, almost by accident. That's actually kind of the whole... And, and Grant talks about this a lot in the memoirs, is he, he believes that you should only trust people who wait to be chosen. You shouldn't trust people who are, like, advocating for themselves exactly, a whole bunch. Exactly, yes. And it's one of the big things he uh, respects about uh, Meade, George Gordon Meade, who won Gettysburg on his 
fourth through sixth days on the job, by the right. way. I don't know if you know this about George Wade. Yeah. He, he, he was on the job for six days, and the latter three of those were Gettysburg. <laughs> I, what? Um, and so, after, you know, Meade is, is a little bit disfavored at this point because, like a lot of the Eastern generals, he wasn't aggressive enough, so Lincoln puts Grant in charge, and Meade says, like, I'll just surrender you the Army of the Potomac. I don't want to be, you know, whatever you think makes the most yeah. sense. And Grant really praises him for that, for saying that this really felt like not a fit of huff resignation, which there were plenty of, but instead, like, what is what is what do you want me to yep. do? And so he really praises Meade for that. And Grant's early career in the Civil War is full of this, as he talks about the memoirs, these sort of accidental things. Like his initial plan, and I think this is mostly in Samet's uh, notes, although he talks about it a little bit, is to go beyond George McClellan's staff. Yeah. Uh, that's what he wants to do. And one reason McClellan probably doesn't do that is McClellan saw him on one of his drinking benders in the 50s, by the way. Uh, that's not in the book, but that's interesting. Uh, and this is very funny. The idea of Ulysses S. Grant working for George McClellan, if you know anything about the Civil War, is hilariously upside down. McClellan is terrible, and I hate him. I was going to um, say, well, I think actually Grant, he, he doesn't necessarily heap coals on anyone's heads, but he's pretty blunt about McClellan, don't you think? He doesn't talk about him too much because they didn't really interact much in the war. But yeah, Maybe I mean, there's no, it might, there's it might no be way the notes to... I'm remembering. To be honest, that is, that is I think it's that is the, the problem notes, yeah. with this book is that at some point the notes, which feature a lot of actually primary sources, <laughs> so sometimes you are reading Grant's words, but they're not the words he wrote for the memoir. <laughs> I mean, one thing this is an, one thing I think it's interesting about the book is Grant mostly doesn't talk about stuff if he unless he was there or even if, if he wasn't there at least if he was in charge, right? So, like, he'll talk about Sherman's march to the sea, even though he obviously wasn't there. He was in Virginia. Right. But he, you know, he, he, he wants to, first of all, talk up his buddy Sherman, but also to sort of explain what was going on under his command. So, like, if you just read this book, you wouldn't have any idea what Gettysburg well, was. I was going to say, so he literally, said, he literally says, like, that's the same day that Gettysburg was won. And then, like, next, next chapter. <laughs> You're like, oh, is it? Yeah. That seems, I've heard of Gettysburg. <laughs> yeah. I think I, is that a big deal? I don't know. Um, um, it was a movie or something, right? Um, and, and so, like, accordingly, Grant doesn't really ever deal with McClellan. By the time Grant goes east, McClellan has left and is running for the presidency against Lincoln. The jerk. <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, it's, just, it's a very funny thing, right? The idea that Grant would work for McClellan. Who, if you, I'm not going to get into too much of the Civil War stuff. McClellan is the reason the Civil War took as long as it did, because he built this massive, incredible army, which he was good at. He was good at administrating and creating an army. And then he just dicked around with it for a long time and got a lot of guys killed, which is something we're going to talk more about later. Yes. Um, for no good reason. Um, and so one of the myths about, like, the South having better generals is because if you compare Lee to McClellan, yeah, they sure did. Right, right. <laughs> Um, um, but yeah, so but anyway, Grant, Grant tries to work for McClellan. McClellan doesn't even respond, and so he just ends up with this regiment of Illinois Volunteers. Like he's joined up the army, but they don't know what to do with him yet. This regiment of Illinois Volunteers uh, embarks with a colonel that they all hate, and so they all say, "We're not going to war with this man." And so the army says, "Fine." Fires the colonel and says, "Who do we got to fill this?" I guess there's Grant. Okay, yep. well, sure. And <laughs> we need everybody we can, so we'll put Grant in charge of this regiment. We'll see what he does. No, it, it is it is no, but it is actually fascinating because here is a Mexican War veteran who's a West Point grad who also left the army for mysterious sodden reasons, perhaps you know. Yeah, and and so, but I do, I do, I genuinely find it really fascinating because, and I think this is the whole point of the Civil War is it's hard to not continually project yourself back into that space because like, you know I talked about you know kind of off the podcast. I mean, I I have I definitely have family that like you know they weren't you know, they didn't resign under serious circumstances, but like if the war happened, they would be like, if we were scraping for people, it'd be like, Oh, well, 
yeah, you know, David Cuthbertson, he's got, you know, experience leading people during the surge in Iraq. Yeah, get him out of that aerospace job. You know what I mean? Like, there is a weird parallelism that you can't, for me at least, ever escape with this book because it is the Civil War. It, it's Americans versus Americans. It happens on American soil in a way that, like, warfare just hasn't happened um, except for, like, that and the Revolutionary War. And so I, I it's hard to escape those things. But I, I think with Grant, it, what's fascinating is even this kind of, like, lucky skip up the ladder he deals with it so offhandedly do you know what I mean like I, I feel like you you without yeah. without the annotations for me at least as someone who's not read some of the side material that I, that you read for this and for other reasons um you almost you, I honestly I, I wouldn't have without Sam it kind of helped me sometimes I wouldn't have realized how weird it was that he got certain promotions do you know what I mean like because he's kind of like well and then it just sort of but I, but I think it's part of what he really believes so like and then this kind of just happened to me that's actually what he believes. Is like yeah. this just happened to me, and I dealt with it the best I could. And I think he actually means that. I think. It, I mean, he doesn't. A lot of nineteenth-century writers would talk about how, and the hand of providence moved me up through the right. ranks. And Grant doesn't do that. You know, I think we need to talk about Grant's prose a little bit. It's really uh, frugal. I think is the word I would use. Yes. Right? Particularly when you compare it with everything else being written in the nineteenth century, right? And 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 Samet's annotations make this very clear because it's one of her main points is that Grant's demythologizing the war. Like, Grant was capable of being florid. Yeah. He did it in some of his letters. He did it in some of his speeches. But he deliberately chooses, or he must have deliberately chosen, to be as sparing and direct and Hemingway-esque, obviously that's anachronistic, but I agree with you, as he can throughout almost the whole book. And it's it's a really kind of a shocking thing. Like, some of his idioms, some of his language feels so much like something we would write now. Like, at one point, he talks about having, you know, pretty much a lot to do. I think that's a quote, <laughs> right? When yeah. he's talking about writing the yeah. Overland campaign. Um, and... It's it's fascinating to compare with the annotation Samet has, um, just just how sparing and to the point he is. And so yeah, he doesn't say the hand of providence moved me up through the ranks, which is I think a lot of people would have written it reflexively. Do you know what I mean? Like without even agree. trying to make any sort of philosophical point. Yeah, this is just a series of things that happened to him, and he never, as he put it, and I believe this is more or less correct, really agitated for higher levels of command. I think he's as surprised as everybody else when Abraham Lincoln says, "I'm going to go get this." western theater guy who keeps winning and put him in charge of everything but then he totally rises to the occasion and does he ends right. the war in a year well and i i think to, to go back to his, his style too i i think the circumstances of this of this book's um creation him writing it so quickly as he's dying it writing it for money right i i think there's yeah. a way in which knowing that actually does help a lot with what's endearing about it because it feels like there's not enough time literally in his life yeah. for him to hide yeah. who he is, right? He is going to tell you all the essentials, but what that also means is that he will, honestly, like, you can't massage it as much, right? There's not time to massage it, even if that was his temperament, which I don't think it is. But what I'm trying to say is, like, as far as, like, memoirs being an insight into the soul, what's funny is he is so um, effaced, right? He he throws up all kinds of, you know, shadows to, to, to so you don't know who he is, right? Because he basically doesn't talk about himself you know, in an internal sense that we would expect from like a modern biography. But actually I think the exigency of his circumstance means that we get a better picture of his, his character than you would. Right. Cause like he is bearing it all. This is what bearing it all looks like for us. Grant frugal prose. Yeah. Um, that I think is really striking partly because I think it continually gives weight to the war he's waging right at no at no time can you lapse into sort of a romanticized 
vision of warfare, which again is Sam, it's, that's her biggest point in the annotations, I think. But also, I think it is, it must be Grant's intention. He talks about the number dead in mathematical terms. He talks about losses bluntly. He talks about winning bluntly. Because for him, it was this really ugly business that doesn't need to be kind of like puffed up into something it's not. And so I think, but I, I think the fact of him dying while he writes it, I actually, I really feel like it gives weight to the text in a way that I usually resist, to be honest. I'm usually not interested in that stuff. But I was just going to say, I do love the anachronisms or whatever you would call it, um, the idioms that have survived to our time. Because he sounds like a 19th century American fella right until he says, like, it was Greek to me. Or I had to face yeah. the music. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm talking to my grandpa again. You know what I mean? Like, there's this, yeah. <laughs> there's this continuity of language that I feel like is also really um, winning in this book. But, but yeah, I do. Yeah, so his prose is definitely frugal. Um, but we should get, so he, he, so he gets this regiment and, um, I, I think it's fair to say like, he's not really on anyone's radar until Donaldson, correct? Yeah. I mean, so he gets a promotion to brigadier general, I think exactly a month after he's done being a colonel, mostly cause they just need bodies. Right. right? So being a brigadier general in this war means you're in charge of a, a group of men. It doesn't mean you're making big decisions, right? It means you're organizing this group of men. And I lose track of exactly the way they separate the different sizes of army, like partly because different guys with the same rank have different responsibilities. So I lose track of it. But, you know, he gets in charge of a group of men, including his original regiment, as Brigadier General about a month later. And so he's, you know, he's given some independence, but he's still not supposed to be in charge. And then he takes these two forts in northern Tennessee, Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, particularly Donelson. Henry mostly gets abandoned. Uh, and it's at a time when the Union is not winning very many battles because George McClellan is still in charge in the East, uh, and he sucks, and I hate him. <laughs> um, for the record, do you follow Jane Coaston on Twitter? I do, yeah. Yeah. So Jane Coaston's a very fun follow for a lot of reasons, but about once a month she goes on a big hate about George McClellan, <laughs> and I appreciate it. But anyway, nope, people aren't winning very much in the, in the Union at this point. Uh, in the East, you know, there's a lot of skirmishing in the West. At this point, the Western theater is just very messy. There's a lot of guerrilla warfare going on in Missouri. Uh, so I'm not saying nobody has won a battle before Grant. That's not right. true. But it's been very messy, and they're looking for big, major wins, and they don't have them. And at the beginning of the war, everybody on both sides thought it was going to take a few months, right? And Grant himself talks about how, until Shiloh, he thought it was going to take 90 days, roughly, which is the original, Lincoln's original call-up for volunteers was for 90-day volunteers. Um, and it's already starting to not go as quickly as they want, or maybe if it's going to be over in 90 days, it's going to end with an independent south. And then Grant takes these two forts uh, on northern Tennessee, which are important. They overlook the Tennessee and the Cumberland River. And uh, everyone's very happy with him, yeah. right? Suddenly he's he's getting a lot of praise. He comes to Lincoln's attention to some extent, although Lincoln's still primarily focused on the Eastern Theater. And that's what really first, catap first catapults him into the public eye. Um, and we got to talk a little bit about my favorite thing he does, which is at Fort Donelson. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So Fort Donelson, it doesn't really take him very long to take it, which is an interesting comparison towards the end of the war. You get these sieges that last for months, right? right? And the siege of Fort Donelson, I think, like three or four days, something like that. Um, his former buddy, Simon Bolivar Buckner, who, again, he went traveling with in Mexico, uh, sends Grant a letter because Grant's got the fort besieged and the Navy's there and there's just no way they're going to win. And at this point, nobody's holding out in sieges the way they could, right? Um, and he says a letter saying... 
Sir, in consideration of all the circumstances governing the present situation of affairs at this station, I propose to the commanding officer of the Federal Forces the appointment of commissioners to agree upon terms of capitulation of the forces and fort under my command, and in that view suggest an armistice until 12 o'clock today. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, S.B. Buckner, Brigadier General CSA. In other words, I'd like to surrender. Can we have a whole long chat about it where we send commissioners and do this whole sort of Napoleonic War thing? And Grant responds, General S.B. Buckner, Confederate Army. Sir... Yours of this date, proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation, is just received. No terms, except an unconditional and immediate surrender, can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, U.S. Grant Brigadier General. And I love I, that. <laughs> I think everyone loves that, Bill. <laughs> it's the best. It, it, no, it really is. Um and I, I think I think but I think that is part of what makes his reputation, right? In the introduction, Samet talks about unconditional surrender grant, right? That he sort of shocks people with his I don't know, it's a way in which I think he was kind of cutting through the bullcrap during the war in the same way he cut through it after the war, right? Where he was not going to yeah. play into this kind of like romantic gallantry. I have you by the throat, surrender, right? Um, yep. But it does. I, I will say, like, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever mythology you were raised with or not, I don't know how you read those words and don't become a bit of a fan. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it could just be us, but I I do feel like that is that is someone you want to know more about at the very least. And also, again, and I, you know, it's it's amazing how often his wartime orders and some of the letters that the um, editor includes in the annotated edition it's amazing how often his voice is consistent like he he could be forward yeah. like you said but i was actually also amazed at how often he writes how he writes in the memoir throughout his life apparently you know he wants to get to the point but it's not blunt or you know it's not you know it's not it's not i don't know it is blunt but it's not like poorly written i guess what i'm trying to say yeah. it is just to the point um but I, yeah <laughs> unconditional surrender grant what a you know that's a pretty good reputation but but donaldson but donaldson well, it's, it's, it's also good it, it's a fun letter it, the way it appears in the book too because he knows this is famous right. right this is what got him his nickname this is uh he was, i think it was after donaldson he was smoking a cigar and people heard about it and started sending him crate loads of cigars which of course yep. gave him throat cancer years later but anyway you know he knows this letter is famous he doesn't tag it he doesn't say and then I said this thing, which I really enjoyed, and ha-ha, stick it to it, man. Like, no, we're doing real war. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, to this I replied as follows. Letter. And then he prints Buckner's response, which among, which says, okay, but I'm mad about it. <laughs> Buckner's response is like, I, I have no terms, but I have no choice but to accept your ungenerous and unchivalrous terms. And, you know, Grant doesn't, in the memoirs, doesn't say, yeah, of course it's unchivalrous. This is real war, right. you, dumb, you dummy. He doesn't do yeah. that. But and so I think just putting it in context is a more effective way of making you realize that that's what he's doing, right? And that's that's what he does so much of the time. He doesn't very often tag his famous moments with lots of discussion about why he did it. He just says, "This is what I did," and it's effective. Well, I was going to say so. So Samet throughout the book is she's really interested in I think because okay she's taught for you know twenty years, thirty years, whatever at West Point, teaching actual soldiers, cadets who will become soldiers. Who will go to war, right? And she, you know, yep. I think she started teaching in 99. And so she taught classes that pretty soon after she started teaching knew they were going to war, right? Because in the 90s, it was like, yeah, you're going to go abroad to Hawaii or whatever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but um, so 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 I think she she's pretty interested in the mindset it takes to be in battle, especially as a c civilian teaching cadets. 
And I think what Grant so often shows and what she does a good job showing is sort of the inexplicable simplicity of what it's like to be in battle. So the phrase that I've always heard from like the, I have a lot of folks in the military and my family. And the phrase that I've always heard is the adrenaline monkey. You know, like you don't know what you're going to do in the moment until the monkey's on your back. You just don't know. Like you've been trained. You, you probably will have certain reactions you wouldn't have without training. But there is sort of this mystifying physical reaction that's also mental. And I think Grant talks about one point kind of pursuing an enemy early in his you know career in the Civil War. And he talks about realizing this, this person like ran away from him. I can't remember the exact details, which I apologize. Because it's, it's – Yeah, so it's 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 before – it's I think it's when he's a colonel. It's, yeah, yeah uh, it's before Donaldson. It's like – Yeah, he's chasing – I can't remember who, but he's chasing somebody around Missouri, I think – and he's nervous about it. He's got his heart in his three. He talks about his heart getting higher and higher. It's one of the few moments when he really does talk about his personal emotions, right? His heart getting higher and higher in his chest. Now he never felt that way in the Mexican-American War, but now he was in right. charge, you know? And he was chasing this guy, and he's really worried about it. And he gets to the camp to discover that the enemy has fled, apparently in fear of Grant's coming. And Grant realizes that the enemy is as scared of me as I am of him. And he says he was, he never approached a battle with that level of trepidation ever again. Like he was nervous, he right. says, but he never approached it with that level of trepidation again. Well, so I, I think what's, and that's what's so I think mesmerizing about Grant and his prose is that it, it is in some ways, these very sincere, straightforward mentalities and sentiments that he presents, right? It's nothing that would shock you or even make you, you know, kind of wonder like, well, oh, he wanted to win more? Is that why he won? You know, like, <laughs> but I think, but his answer would be yes. Actually, yes. No, I was. I did want to win more and I did want to move faster and I and I actually did it. And I think that the translation from I did want it more and I actually did it, that translation is, I think, what makes it so mesmerizing because he doesn't try to explain it. He just shows it. He just continually talks yeah. about what he did. And you're kind of more and more mesmerized by the fact that it, at least for the most part, keeps working to the point that, yes, this the Union, which, again, it's hard to know how much of this history is long cause kind of propaganda or sorry, lost cause propaganda or or something else. But I mean the union didn't think they were going to win a lot of the times, you know, and, and Grant, Grant yeah. talks about how he thinks that's overstated actually when he's talking about the Mexican war. But, but I think there was a real <laughs> mentality of like, they've got a lot of the best stuff, you know, and also the secretary of war under, um, you know, <laughs> Buchanan or whatever was like putting armies throughout the South or whatever it was like supplies throughout the South, yeah. you know, like so they, they were ready for this. They were waiting for this. And I, I think that that, mis that mystery between meaning to do it and doing it in those circumstances when the adrenaline monkey has fully controlled your body, I think it's mesmerizing. And I think he is so smart in the way he never gets – he never kind of gets lost in the mystery of it. He goes right past it, which makes it actually more mesmerizing. But the whole book is kind of a show-don't-tell manifesto, yes, right? Yes, very much I mean, so. It's, you know, there's a lot of times he could have sort of stopped and stared at the reader and lectured them about why he did what he did. And he, when he does it, he's only talking about military tactics. Yep. You know, he's not really talking about how he ginned himself up to do it. He's like, yeah, I did it. Or and that's everyone talked about him as though, like, he never got scared. Like, like in, in battle, yep. he always kept a really cool head and handled everything. It's one of the things I always say about Sherman, too, is like Sherman could Sherman was a lot more chaotic and sort of, you know, loud outside of battle, although Grant could be, I guess. When he wasn't hanging, when he was hanging around people he knew, I guess he could be quite garrulous. But you know, Sherman and Grant both could just keep an even keel no matter what they got, and that's the I mean, that certainly makes sense throughout the book because that's the way he writes. It about is, it, right? yeah, is, no, it is. 
Um, so yeah, but so yeah, so Donaldson though, that's what kind of catapults him, like you said, to you know he he, he smokes a cigar and famously gets sent a lot of cigars. And actually, I I wish I'd written it down because I can't find it in the notes now. But he he smokes an ungodly amount of cigars. <laughs> He does, yeah. It's 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 the way he clearly is managing yes. stress. Like, there's one day when he, I, I can't remember when, it's later on, when he's he's got, like, 20 cigars in his pocket, and I think it's during the Overland campaign, which must have been just the most stressful thing anyone's ever done, and he's smoking them, like, end to end, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he tries to, he tries to offer one to a buddy and realizes he's out. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I've smoked 20 cigars today. <laughs> Chain-smoking cigars, that's... <laughs> which I can't even... I can make it through maybe three quarters of a cigar before I need to take a break. I don't. <laughs> I don't like cigars anymore. I used to like them, but you know, I got old. Apparently, apparently he didn't. <laughs> he just got throat cancer. Sorry, Grant. Too much. Too much, Grant. Sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, Donaldson's what makes him famous, which is what you were saying. And then we well, got I think no, but so I, and I think before we get into Shiloh or Vicksburg, even I think that it also establishes his traits as a general. I mean, that's what Samet talks about as well. That he makes a few choices which become vital. Um, f- you know, moving forward, right? So, like, so, so famously and apocryphally, um, Lincoln might have said when he, like, you know, they're talking about Grant and the, you know, Washington, and people are forming against him, mostly against him. And Lincoln supposedly says, "I can't spare this man. He fights, right?" And uh, and the big one of the big things, which I believe happens, you know, in Donaldson or thereabouts, is his move to living off the country, which becomes an essential strategy going forward to helps win the war. Yes, that's mostly at Vicksburg, but yes, that it absolutely becomes a big part of why they win the yeah, war. Yeah, well, I, is, uh, I was going to say, I, 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 I don't have the note in front of me, but yeah, at one point in Donaldson, they, it's like a day or two. It's not like the Vicksburg campaign where they do it for a long yeah, time. Yeah, you're right. So they, you're but right. it's the first moment they try it a little bit, and then he realizes this is this is possible. This is maybe something we can do later. Um, which, again, part of that's the footnote, kind of giving that, that history of it, that narrative. But... Um, but I do, I think, but also what I've written down here is it, it's true of his prose, but it's also true of his, um, his, his way of, you know, going about battle. He's an essentializer. He says, I looked upon side movements as long as the enemy held Port Hudson and Vicksburg, which I'm jumping ahead now as a waste of time and material. And he, he says stuff like this all the time where he says that yeah. doesn't matter. You are distracted. Right. Which gets him in trouble. Arguably. I'm not sure this is maybe the, the actual reason why, but like we should touch on, we should at least touch on Maybe We don't have a lot of time for it, but Shiloh, cause Shiloh is kind of a disaster. Yeah. Shiloh's a mess. Uh, it is a strategic union victory, but it is a sort of a tactical draw and it is very bloody. So I, I, when Shiloh happens, which let me get the exact date here. April 6th through 7th, 1862. Shiloh, up to, at that point, becomes not only the bloodiest battle of the Civil War to date, it'll get eclipsed later, uh, it actually, more people are killed, wounded, or missing at Shiloh than I think in any other war in American history. Like, war. Like, I think more right. people die yeah. or are injured at Shiloh than at the whole Revolutionary War. What? And then, of course, you count both sides for that, because they're both right, Americans, right. right? But that gives you an example of the scale of what happens at Shiloh. So the first day of Shiloh... Grant's troops get at least somewhat surprised by a Confederate attack. Uh, one, it's hard to tell exactly how surprised. Grant s- says, you know, less than the myths. The myths are that, like, they found General Prentice's men Sleeping, still asleep. Yeah. Grant says that's not what happened. Nobody knows what actually happened at Shiloh, which Samet in her uh, opener, her introduction, talks a lot about, you know, 13 ways of looking at a battle yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Shiloh and talks about all the different ways. And one of her best points, I think, is, People who were there claim that that means they know what happened, but that's not really how this kind of war works. Being there might actually make it harder to tell what happened in the grand scheme yep. of things. And she cites a lot from like War and Peace and 
the way he describes some of those battles. But certainly they're caught at least somewhat off guard in the first day, and they get pretty badly beaten up. They don't flee, mostly. Like, they manage to, to pull back and hold by the river. And then Don Carlos Buell's troops, the Army of the Ohio, show up and reinforce him, and they push back and win the second day. So the Union wins Shiloh, but it's so bloody that it startles the entire nation, right? Uh, and it leads to Grant being sort of exiled from command for a few months um, because it's just so, so unbelievably bloody and there's all these myths about Grant being completely caught with his pants down, which is, again, probably at least not completely true, but it's hard to say. And, you know, Lou Wallace gets lost. <laughs> uh, and... Okay, real, real quick, though. <laughs> Lou Wallace, who wrote Ben-Hur. <laughs> yes. Which I, which I, well, I just, I knew at one point that the guy who wrote Ben-Hur was like, I think I knew he was in the Union Army or something. But what I what caught me so off guard in this memoir was Grant talking about him for a while and kind of, I Grant's never too critical. I feel, like, but I feel like he's pretty dismissive of him, you know, um, at least in this moment. Even though he's nice about him afterward, he's always nice afterward. He's like, oh, ah, yeah. he got lost and was dumb, but oh, he's a whatever. Um, but then the footnotes like <laughs> Lou Wallace, who went on to write Ben Hur, and my jaw just dropped. I was like, wait, yeah, <laughs> wait, what? He wrote Ben Hur, which I I don't know. I still find astounding to be honest. Anyway, he got lost. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, again, and, and actually Grant in the notes to the original edition says he got some letters from Wallace's widow, and maybe that's actually a little more complicated than I thought. Whatever, right? right. But, you know, it's, it's a very messy battle. No one's in the right place. Uh, and so the, you know, the army actually basically removes him from command. They don't kick him out of the army, but they send him somewhere else for a while, you know, uh, and it's, it's a big disaster. Uh, and the most important thing for Grant, actually, is that's when he realizes this is not going to take 90 days. This, we're going to have to conquer the whole South. Yeah, yeah. You know, he says, I, this war is only going to end with conquest because I think both sides, up to some extent, thought that what was going to happen is they were going to show up and wave their guns around and the other guys were going to run away. Right. right. And the Union thought that the South wasn't that into it and they would just run away. And the South had this myth that, you know, one Southerner can lick 10 Yankees, which, you know, was true on Fredericksburg, for instance, but that's different <laughs> and is not true in other moments. Um, and... Grant's one of the first people to realize this is going to take a whole lot more effort than we thought. And almost immediately after Shiloh, he says, we need to take Vicksburg. Right yes. Now. And uh, they dilly-dally around with that for quite a while. He doesn't finish Vicksburg until the next year in July. And granted, he's had it under siege for a while. But Well, I think uh, I, I think a specific moment ahead. in Shiloh that I think is, is, is important for the memoirs is um, – he, he he doesn't ever go out of his way. It would be wrong to say he goes out of his way to demythologize. I think I think the, the whole book is a demythologizing and deromanticizing, but that he does pick moments to kind of highlight you know the inaccuracy of talking about the Civil War in a certain way. And in one of those moments is when he talks about Johnston um, on the Confederate yeah. side being killed. A. S. Johnston, to be clear, not yeah, Johnson, yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right. <laughs> There's two of them. <laughs> Why would they do that to me? <laughs> what I love, the Union has a general named Jefferson C. Davis at one point. <laughs> yeah. Jefferson yeah. Davis, of course, is the Southern right. president. Like, why, guys, come up with some new names. This Get, is very confusing. Well, call him by his middle name. He's no longer Jefferson. <laughs> and then, of course, there's there's Winfield Scott, who was the Mexican War commander, who was technically in charge at the beginning. And then there's a very famous Civil War general later on named Winfield Scott Hancock, which, of course, is great because he's named after Winfield Scott. So it tells you a lot about <laughs> how important Winfield Scott was. But like very confusing yeah. for like for a moment they're reading about Gettysburg. I was like, wait, Winfield Scott was it? Get- well, no, even, no, 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 no. Even, even, okay. <laughs> even in the footnotes, one point Sam it's referencing the General McPherson and James McPherson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The 
the author of one of the great Civil War histories of the last 40 years is James McPherson, and there was a famous Civil War general, James McPherson. I actually read uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, the McPherson book, this year, partly in preparation for the podcast, and... Uh, he goes out of his way in the book at one point to say, as far as I know, there's no relation, but I agree that it's funny. You know what I'm like? <laughs> but, 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 but so Johnson's killed quite early, um, right, at the Battle yeah. of Shiloh. And, and so there's, some, there's, there's talk about how he was the finest general and, and they would have won if he hadn't have died. And, and Grant doesn't, again, he's never like sledgehammering stuff, but he's pretty clear about like there's no indication that they would have won because he was alive. You know what I mean? Like there's no indication that basically yeah. um, the actual situation on the ground would have changed. Like it, it, it's just one of those things where I think it's actually very Tolstoy-esque to be honest, where he kind of says like, look, the conditions are so much more, you know, the scale is so much larger than this one man and the positions yeah. were already entrenched. Like everything was already in motion. The idea that his death lost in the battle is just a fancy idea that doesn't really, it can't be proven. So why would you even advocate for it? I'm going to quote a bit from his uh, his his discussion there because it's it's it, first of all it's funny. Uh, he he says some of these critics claim that Shiloh was won when Johnston fell and that if he had not fallen, the army under me would have been annihilated or captured. Ifs defeated the Confederates at Shiloh. <laughs> there is little doubt that we would have been disgracefully beaten if all the shells and bullets fired by us had passed harmlessly over the enemy and. If all of theirs had taken effect, <laughs> commanding generals are liable to be killed during engagements. And the fact that when he was shot, Johnson was leading a brigade to induce it to make a charge, which had been repeatedly ordered, is evidence that there was neither the universal demoralization on our side nor the unbounded confidence on theirs, which has been claimed. You know, which is, first of all, funny. His bit about, ifs. yeah, if they had never mi- missed and we had never hit anybody, that would have, you know, like, yeah, you can always create ifs that would change a battle, but the conditions on the ground, like you say, are he had to order them to make this charge several times. That leads me to think that they weren't so confident or us as demoralized as they said, right? As the story goes. And he's, he's already fighting like the lost well, cause. Well, I was going to say, here. isn't that such an amazing <laughs> puncturing of the lost cause? Ifs, ifs lost the battle. Um, but no, I, I do love that section. That's a great part. But I, so, yeah, so, so Shiloh is, he goes into exile after Shiloh a little bit, right? Yeah. And then, um, and then I, 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 that's when the whole kind of, issue with Halleck happens right like isn't that when things go s- so it's con- it's constant but yeah Halleck gets particularly mad at Grant after Shiloh if I remember correctly and again trying to keep track of all this is difficult and I if I get something wrong I apologize but Halleck is always a little bit mad at Grant throughout the whole war and actually later on in the Overland campaign Lincoln says when you send orders to other people through Washington Make sure you read what they say when they go out, because I think Halleck's changing your order. <laughs> and he does. Halleck does change his orders a few times. Because Halleck is a very, uh, he's a very political general, he's and ambitious. he's a very cautious yeah. guy. And Grant is, Grant's whole thing is like, we're not going to win this war by being cautious. We're going to win this war by, you know, beating the other guy. To the point where he actually gets mad at George Thomas at Nashville, who might be the best general in the war, actually. Uh, because George Thomas doesn't take the initiative enough, and Grant almost removes the Rock of Chickamauga from command, which is insane for the record. But <laughs> well, he, he, I mean, but then the footnote one point talks about this because Sherman, again, this is from the footnotes. Um, Sherman, in a letter, says, "I am more brilliant than you know Grant. I know more military history. I have more ideas, um, but he cannot be distracted. You know, you cannot yeah. get him to think about things that don't matter. Which again, Samet, interested in instructing, I think cadets, and that bleeds into her, her 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 editing. She talks about that being such an essential trait of many great commanding officers is that you know what might be liable actually in the civilian world, a liability in the civil world, civilian world becomes sort of this defining trait where 
to the point, like, yeah, to the point that he maybe overdoes it. Um, but I, I actually, I want to, I want to talk about Vicksburg, Bill. I want to talk, talk about, about Vicksburg. Vicksburg. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about a lot else, but you know, I put it in my notes here, and I have you know some uh, <laughs> some thoughts of myself. But why, Bill, does Sherman call the Vicksburg campaign one of the greatest in history before they even lay siege to Vicksburg? Yeah, so it's because the siege of Vicksburg itself is not that exciting. And in fact, Grant maybe screws up in it by ordering a couple of assaults that aren't going to work. Which actually he um, talks about. He, yeah, he maintains that he had to do it because his men wanted to, basically. And that makes some sense to me, actually, right? right. And also that he'd, he'd licked that army several times already, uh, and he thought maybe we charge it again, they'll just surrender. Which, again, had happened at previous sieges, right? Donaldson could have held out longer. It didn't because it didn't want to. Right. right. Uh but what's brilliant about Vicksburg, and again, I'm not a tactical guy. I'm reciting other people's opinions here. But what's brilliant about Vicksburg, so Vicksburg, Mississippi, is a heavily in, uh, heavily fortified fort over the Mississippi River, which uh, you can't really get at from the north. They tried it a few times. They couldn't do it. The only way to really get at it is going to be to get at it from the southeast. The problem with that is you have to get across the Mississippi River out of the range of its batteries and out of the range of the Confederate you know, forces yeah. in order to do that, right? And then you have to fight up through Mississippi to do it, which with traditional supply lines is going to be just impossible, right? Because the Confederates have good cavalry raiders who are going to tread your supply lines every time. So Grant says, fine, I'm not going to do any of those things anyway. <laughs> so he goes south. He has his ironclads run the batteries at Vicksburg uh, along with some transports. So they just sail right past the batteries and get shelled a bunch and mostly come through unscathed. Then he crosses the river much further south and fights his way up north. He knows he's going to win this if he can confuse the Confederates about what he's doing and if he can destroy any chance of Vicksburg getting supplies from outside of Vicksburg. Right. right? So to do that, he fights a series of five battles up north, which I can't narrate with specificity in any way. It's not the point. But most importantly, what he does is he cuts his supply lines and his lines of communication, which, first of all, as Samet points out, means he doesn't have to get scolded by Halleck for doing something uh, crazy. Well, he, yeah, no, uh, he doesn't get stopped by yeah. Halleck, right? Like, Halleck can't yeah. command him to stop. <laughs> and at one point, Halleck does say, like, what are you doing, man? Knock it off. And it gets through to him. And he says, well, he said this two weeks ago before I was within striking distance of Vicksburg. So, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he knew our current position, he would rescind these orders. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not going to follow these orders. Uh, and who knows what Halleck... Halleck probably would have told him to turn around because Halleck was... You know, a scaredy cat, but he ignores the orders, which is very funny. Uh, you know, you shouldn't really do that in war very much, but Grant's going to win this thing. And so he, he fights a series of battles up north, gets roughly parallel with Vicksburg, and then doesn't attack Vicksburg. And Teddy takes Jackson, Mississippi, the capital, which is the primary way that supplies are going to get to Vicksburg, draws Pemberton's, uh, the Confederate general's army, out of Vicksburg to try to defend Jackson, beats Pemberton's army a few times, then they do get away from him, and they get into Vicksburg, and then he sieges the place and just kind of hangs out after a couple of early attacks until they give up. Um, so Sherman says that, I forget exactly when, but it's I think it's about the time they've gone back to Vicksburg, but before they've invested the city. Because that's the brilliant part of the campaign, right? Is living off of the land, cutting your supply lines so that the Confederate cavalry can't come through and you know cut your supply lines because you don't have any, right? Uh, and in doing so, not only feeding your soldiers, but denying the enemy that forage, right? And then fainting around in different places such that the enemy's going to take a lot of losses because they're confused about what you're doing and they can't really engage you with all their force. Uh, he's also got help. Uh, Benjamin Grierson's doing one of the great cavalry raids of the war throughout Mississippi at this point. So it's not like he's doing it all right. on his own. Although, he, of course, he told Grierson to do it. Um, 
but that's what's so brilliant about the campaign is the way he moves so much faster and so much more unpredictably than the confederates were ready for because people don't cut their supply lines yet like this is not a thing you do right. very much right it's a it's a bedrock rule of war actually even sherman who would do this himself later a few years later in georgia in the carolinas sherman actually says to grant like man what are you doing <laughs> like you can't do this you're going to get us all killed and instead he just beats the heck out of the confederates throughout everything and until the siege doesn't even really suffer very many casualties well, um, and so that's what's so brilliant. I was gonna say, it. so I, I mean, again, my grasp is even is even lighter than yours. You know, it's it's very very soft grip on things. But but I, I mean, I think effectively what he does is that he he basically like not literally maybe like, but he's able to move between two Confederate forces, right? So like, there's a way like he yep. should be getting in trouble because one force should be at his back, right? They should be at his back, able to attack him if he wasn't moving so much quicker because of this cutting the supply lines thing. Um, and I, I there's one of the it was one of the few times in the text where actually not only did I want more footnotes, but it, it's where I saw the gates of becoming a civil war dad open before my eyes um, <laughs> because I was like, I want maps, you know, I want, I want maps yeah. and I want little red lines pointing to things. And I want like eight maps in a row that show me the positions of different forces and different generals and so forth, so on. Um, but I do think you're right to bring up Sherman who, um, who goes out of his way in this little you know, moment later before the actual siege of Vicksburg, who goes out of his way to say, the credits all due to grant i told him he was wrong you know he says that publicly basically and i it's actually a really beautiful moment where grant in the memoir says sherman was just as much to credit for his actual deeds even if he didn't like the idea and i think throughout the book at least you know from what we can tell on grant's side the respect between the men seems very genuine during the war they seem to like each other at least at least in retrospect grant seems to be very fond of that relationship Oh, no, Sherman and Grant were brothers. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely true. Uh, Sherman at one point, so Sherman Sherman actually realized the battle, the war was going to be bloody before maybe anybody, even including Grant, did. And he actually fell into such a deep depression that they relieved him from command. And basically, they didn't put him in literally an insane asylum, but like he was sent home to like try to be less crazy. Right. Um, and Sherman lit, wrote later, Grant stood by me when I was crazy, and I stood by him when he was drunk, which is obviously, you know, a, a little bit over the top. But uh, <laughs> yeah, they were they were absolutely bros during the Civil War and after. I mean, Sherman was Grant's general of the army when Grant was right, and I, I knew some of that. But it was it, honestly, the, this is where I think the the memoirs are so disarming is that the warmth comes through. Here's a factual man yeah. frugal with his words, like you said, and yet. Because of that, when he does highlight something, it stays highlighted, right? And he highlights Sherman more than once in a way that he highlights no one else. Well, it's fun the way he does it, too, because Grant mostly doesn't say Sherman, who I love and is my favorite. And you know, He doesn't do that, nope. right? The yeah. only person he really does that with is James McPherson when he dies uh, in, in Atlanta. Right. Grant writes a little paragraph about how he was one of the most gallant and wonderful generals, right? And everybody loved McPherson. Sherman wept when McPherson died, right? Um, and I don't know enough about him to say why, but everyone loved him, right? And so Grant mostly doesn't say that about his, his best bro, Sherman, but he will repeatedly in the, like, again, with his, his characteristic frugal and direct style, he'll just say, Sherman, always prompt, did this, <laughs> yes. right? And that's his, his primary objection to the other generals under his command is that they dilly-dally, yeah. right? And so when he says, you know, I'm mad at George Thomas for not moving fast enough, I'm mad at everybody else, you know, his whole plan in 65, 64 is for everybody to move at once and only Sherman and he move and Butler to some extent, right? Like everyone else just hangs around and doesn't start their attacks until 65 yes, when it doesn't right. matter. Um, 
but so what he repeatedly says Sherman always prompt or like the incredible confidence he uh, displays in Sherman when Sherman gets to Atlanta and Grant says, all right, well, come back up here and meet me up. And he says, I'll do what you want, man, but I think I can just Keep go to the going. sea and break things. Yes. And Grant's like, you sure? And he says, yeah. And he says, go for it. You know, like, and, and Phil Sheridan, who's his big cavalry commander at the end of the war, too. There's one bit when Grant goes to see him to try to give him specific instructions. He's got a whole bunch of, he talks about this memoirs, he has a whole bunch of orders in his pocket. And he gets there and Sheridan says, all right, here's where everybody is. Here's what I think we should do. And Grant keeps his orders in his pocket and just says, go in. <laughs> you know, so the, the guys Grant really loves, he doesn't go out of his way to talk about how great they are, but it's it's so clear from the narrative, again, showing, not telling, that he trusts he, these guys. It's tr- I was going to say, and trust they, is so explicit. And you, you can compare that with, again, even the way he treats George Thomas at Nashville, right. where he says, get out there and fight Hood. What are you doing? Even though he's probably wrong, because when Thomas does move, he annihilates Hood. Hood is gone. Like, there's nothing. It's, it's, it's over. Right. right? Uh He's still, you know, he's chastising him for not moving fast enough. Whereas with Sherman and Sheridan, he's always just like, yep, they're prompt and I trust them. And so, again, showing, not telling, you can see that friendship and that trust in a way that you don't see it with anybody else. I do. So there's other parts of Vicksburg that I, I really, you know, I shouldn't say enjoyed. But I, I and again, Sam is so helpful as a guide, especially, again, for, for someone like me who has very little Civil War reading outside of this book. Um you know, she she talks about that you know the Mexican War maybe is what first put Grant in mind of how useful engineers can be, and you see it during yeah. Vicksburg. Like there's that great um, kind of anecdote about the Union mine explosion that sends um, a black man <laughs> who's been pressing the labor for the Confederates. You know the black man comes back down basically, and he's reported to say like that he was sent three mile high. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but it but the, I think I think you know it you know it talks about how he keeps his men busy trying to experiments. Um, they try all this yeah. stuff with the river and the navy, and I do think you get a sense of how determined Grant is to never cease operations, even when there's nothing to do. Um, like he's been held back from a t- you know going to Vicksburg before he wants to and yet he's still active but but I do um I mean he in his own words I, I quoted this in my notes um Vicksburg was important enough and like you said won the same day that Gettysburg was won um he but Grant says the fate of the Confederacy was sealed when Vicksburg fell much hard fighting was to be done afterwards and many precious lives were to be sacrificed but the morale was with the supporters of the Union ever after and of course also he adds the control of the Mississippi river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, but I do, but I, I don't think it's just sen- sentimentality that makes him always put like elements like the morale was with us ever after he puts that first. And I think again, you can see his own in his own writing and his own battles. He really believes that like the resolve to do something is so much a factor in his victory and in the Union's victory overall, which I think, I guess, it's one of those things where, like, you would hand wave it away if you heard it from someone else who hadn't defeated the Confederacy, right? Like, it's one of those, like, he's kind of earned the right to say, no, 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 resolve and morale win wars, as well as, like, controlling the Mississippi River. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, but I found that, I I don't know, I I, I guess, again, I found myself won over whenever he popped his head up to be like, here was the vitality of it, and, you know, it was so vital and vitalizing, partly because of how it lifted the spirits of my men who were dying for this. And and the whole country, right? Because, I mean, again, uh, at this point, you know, we've had victories in the West, we've had some victories in the East, but they've been stuff like Antietam, which is just horribly bloody, 
and it you know it mostly just stops the confederates from moving north right. right like it doesn't get us any ground it just stops them from going north and you know gettysburg again this this incredible battle the bloodiest battle of the war not per day but total right, right? you know it's an incredible battle but what it gets the union is it stops robert e lee's invasion right it doesn't get ground it doesn't bring us closer to ending the war it just bottles the south up further right so vicksburg is one of the first really important strategic victories like that which actually does damage to the confederacy other than just killing their guys right yeah and the nation needed a victory and they got two in one or two days i guess technically right and you know grant for all that he's talked about not being a very good politician when he was president and there's at least some truth to that he's very aware of the political realities of what the country needs you know in order to keep supporting lincoln Right. And so he, he talks about how he one reason he couldn't turn around in Vicksburg is because then that the whole country would have given up. Right. right. Even if it wasn't correct with the tactical realities on the ground. Right. He had to do it. Like once he cut loose, he had to finish it. And, you know, he talks about that in several other places. So he's very aware of the political realities of the situation. And also, I mean, I think it's right, as I understand it, like once Vicksburg is over and Gettysburg stops Lee's invasion, like the South can't win except by, you know, drawing it out long enough that Lincoln loses in 64. That's the only way the South wins. And one reason I think they didn't win is because most of them didn't want to think about it that way. Right? He does. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting too with the whole morale factor is I, I, I think um, he's ever practical, right? So you just said the morale factor matters for the political situation, that it's it's not just like a hearts and minds thing. It, it, well, it, it, and if it is, it's because it's a hearts and minds that will keep supporting the war you know, financially or with their votes or whatever. But he, and also he, he as uh, Samet talks about, he is semi obsessed with the desertion of Confederate soldiers, right? He talks continuously yeah. about like these were men he was letting loose, but they were just going to go home. These guys are done. They don't want to keep fighting in this war. And so I think that's also a practical issue of like, you know, um, especially in a war like this, which is built so much around, you know, um, ideology and sort of myth making that's beyond you know kind of beyond the practical and also fought by volunteer armies even if you know you were pressed into it to some extent these armies are huge right and they're huge partly because they're having people volunteer at least initially and so the moral the demoralization factor it's about numbers it's always about numbers for green yeah. he always talks about you know the wounded and the killed he Honestly, sometimes it's almost cold because it's the cold logic of war, I think, creeping back into his memoir. He talks about it as if it's equal at times because those numbers, wounded and killed, are numbers taken off the battle, right? They're no longer in yep. play, almost like chess pieces, which, again, I think can be kind of the cold general mindset. But it's also the way in which he never wavers from we are going to win this war with that mindset. So I, so I, Vicksburg, I feel like we, we should be talking more about it almost, but I, I don't, I think we, that's, that's pretty much the highlights. Do you have anything else you want to add to the, to the Vicksburg, um, section? <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to go there at some point and, uh, see there, there is a battlefield there. I imagine it being in Mississippi. It, people are not happy about what happened there, but I'm going to go there and I'm going to wave a little U.S. Grant flag and get shot. Can we, well, so. <laughs> can, so can we just zoom out for a second? Cause we, I think we've done a good job following the book and following his own um, narrative campaign of what he does and doesn't do or whatever. But I, I, I think it's really hard to get past what you just said that like people there aren't very happy about it or, you know, there is this ongoing fascination that I think, I think will never go away at least in the sense of like when you go to a battlefield that is still kind of preserved in some sense, it is remarkable how close 1864 feels to today. You know what I mean? Like that, that gap of time, which actually isn't a huge gap of time, 
but you viscerally for me feel it collapse and there's not a lot of places yeah. like that in America. There's not a lot of history like that that we can that has been preserved at least in America. And so for me, like I was living in Syracuse a few years back, and um, you know uh, we were going to go down to Virginia. Uh, my sister, who's in the military, actually was stationed there, and we were going to go visit her. And we're taking like Highway 15, I think it was, and we literally saw a sign that was like Gettysburg, you know, <laughs> 20 miles. And I, I, I'm pretty sure I was, you know, dumb enough sitcom dad style to be like, you know, oh Emily, you, do you think they mean the Gettysburg? <laughs> <laughs> and like I, like I knew it was but it was still kind of like a shocking thing to see it because we ended up stopping right we stopped and we decided to go look at it and Gettysburg is quite um, cool to be honest because a lot of it's a car tour you know so you can really just drive around yeah. and jump out and look at the different sites but you know the hill where there was the most shelling that hill is still bald you know what I mean? Like it's still yeah. not growing trees or grass. Um, the various monuments to various parts of the Union Army that are all over the place, you know, Minnesota or whatever. It was it was I mean, it was fascinating for a lot of reasons. But the biggest one is that it was it was hard to dismiss it as a war that happened, you know, kind of between our forebears or at least, you know, my forebears. Um I don't know. And I, I think that that part of it, that visceral element of it, like that these are places that you can still visit and that people do visit and that you can visit on accident. I think, you know, beyond all of the other more important elements, that visceral reality, I think it's going to just keep 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 lodging it in our blood. Like, I think the Civil War will be like more important to our national mythology 20 years from now. Do you know what I mean? I expect so. I mean, so I haven't actually been to very many Civil War battlefields because I haven't mostly lived where they are. Right. Same. But the one I've been to several times is Fort Pulaski out uh, out of Savannah, Georgia, which is not a very major battle. Uh, it's I, it's one of the only ones I can actually... I, I can tell you about troop movements at Pulaski, by the way. I won't, but I could. <laughs> um, but, like, the fort is still preserved in pretty close to its condition after they rebuilt it, after, the, after they took it. And what's interesting is that means it's like you go into the fort, you know, you see all the cool stuff, you read all the stuff about how the Union had shelled it from across the you know, across the, the river and so on. And then you go around uh, to the other side of the fort by the ocean and you can still see the, the, the damage, right? right? The, the cannon yeah. holes the, the are still there. Yes. And, you know, of course that's deliberate, right? Cause it's a, it's been a historic site since like, I don't know, the twenties, I think the thirties, maybe uh, the civilian conservation court court rebuilt it. Um, but they didn't rebuild the fort, but they, they cleaned up the space. But, like, even after all the times I've been there, I've been there five or six times because I used to live in Savannah, going around this last time in May and seeing the shells, you know, the damage to the fort is its really visceral, like you say. It's its really unbelievable. Um, and that's just a minor battle. That's never mind Gettysburg. You know yeah, I mean? no, I mean, Gettysburg, I mean, again, I... I... I, I tell it in a silly way because it kind of happened in a silly way, but I, I genuinely had one of those like kind of high school history moments where you, you sort of felt the um, reverence and the, and I don't know, importance of what was before you. And there was, it was hard. It was a hard thing to like kind of dismiss as like with any kind of ironic distance, to be honest, you know? And I, I feel like that actually is sort of the heart of Grant's memoir too, is if you bring ironic distance to this, to this work, it'll either break you down or you'll stop reading it. Cause it's not, it's not present. You yeah. know, he dealt with no. real things with people actually dying. Um, and it wasn't, you know, as much as he was like a, you know, obviously politically aware and, and politically savvy to a certain extent, his focus was the war and winning the war and the cost of lives and so forth, so on. And I think Gettysburg or other places you visit, it does bring that, 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 that necessary, brutal, ugly, 
sincerity home that you know irony is not sort of allowed and i actually do think in our in our and not to be like again you know just an idiot blogger but i do think in our moment it you know, DF, you know, sorry, I almost said DFW. David Foster Wallace, for those of you who aren't a uh, Brooklyn hipster. <laughs> 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 but David Foster Wallace, so he, he had a great campaign against irony in his work. Um, you know, he really kind of worked against this this knee jerk irony that was present in the '90s, especially that I think is still present in a more cynical way now. And I think that's part of the relief of sometimes of reading these kind of books is that you you see sincerity that's worth um, sort of paying attention to. Um, so that, that was sorry. That was a pretty big zoom out. But I, I think there's a, a lot left to cover. <laughs> and well, I think we just need to talk about the Overland campaign. I was going to really. say. I mean, so I was going to say, if you're okay jumping to Overland campaign, you read my mind. Yeah, let's I mean, go. You know, stuff happens in Chattanooga. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, again, he praises his buddy Sherman a lot. But let's get there. I do again want to throw another shout out to George Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. <laughs> but anyway, moving back out east. Uh, so Grant's in charge of everything, and the war needs to be done, right? Like it's yeah. been going on for basically four years at this point. Lincoln has cycled through either four or five generals in charge of the Army of the Potomac, which is the army that's fighting Lee. So McClellan, Burnside, Pope, and Hooker, not in quite that order. Um, And McClellan twice, actually. And what's happened is several times the Union has tried to move into Virginia and has fumbled the ball, basically. They've got more guys. The war isn't quite as brutal yet, right? We aren't doing World War I yet, the way we're about to be, right? Uh, And they fumbled the ball. George McClellan gets fooled by all kinds of funny theatrics at Yorktown, it's almost like it's it's it honestly like I get why it's fun to root for the Confederacy. I mean, I can't do it because I think black people are people, but like it's <laughs> it's you know, I get why it's fun because there are moments when the Confederates pull off some silly stunts. Yeah. And but granted, again, the way I feel it is like, yeah, this is funny and it wouldn't have worked against someone other than George McClellan, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> right. I don't like yeah, you fooled the the child just you know, stole his lollipop. <laughs> like well done. I don't anyway, um I hate George McClellan. Have I mentioned I, that? No, it's the first uh, time I heard it. <laughs> but grant gets out there and at this point like again the south is not going to win this war via military force they're going to win this war by dragging it out so long as the north gives up which is of course that's how you win this kind of war it's how we won the revolutionary war you know it's how uh, vietnam won you know that that's what you do but it's going to get real bloody like that's the way this becomes is it's going to be horrifying and grant realizes that and he doesn't actually talk about it much in the memoirs he doesn't say like you know I knew this was going to be horribly bloody and I was like, he doesn't say that too many times. Right. But he shows it by what he does. And the big thing he does is he marches his army South and he sends Sherman out to Atlanta and they kind of get their nose bloodied at the wilderness. Right. right? Like it's yeah. not, it's not really a union defeat, but it's not fun. You know, like it's, it's bad. And Samet talks about it in the notes. Grant doesn't actually say much about it, but his whole army, the army of the Potomac, these are the guys who've been coming down to Richmond and getting turned around th- over the last four years. They expect him to turn around because everybody else in this situation gets down there, gets into a bad fight, suffers a lot of casualties and says, oh, no, and turns around and leaves. And Grant instead just says, OK, let's keep going. And they're galvanized by it, honestly. Like they've just had this horrible battle, which is, again, one of the bloodiest battles of the war. And Grant just keeps going because he realizes with that cold logic you're talking about that he's still winning. Like it doesn't feel like yes, it. he suffers right. more casualties in most of these encounters. Um. But he's got more men than the South does, and he can also replace his guys, and the South is out. The South, by the end of the war, is literally drafting 14-year-olds. Um, not for, like, frontline duty, but they're there, and they, they die. Right. Like, yeah. you know, they get killed yeah. at Petersburg yeah. and stuff. And Grant realizes this, and he knows, again, that the South is going to hold out to the last man. That's what they're saying, and he believes them. 
whereas the rest of the journals didn't. <laughs> and so he just keeps going. And he fights this like two-month horrible campaign to get down to Petersburg. Two, three months. I forget how long it is. And there are individual battles there, but it's kind of ridiculous to really do that because it's just one big, long fight. And it's gotten into this World War One-style trench warfare. He does talk in there about how he realizes at this point that Lee is never going to leave his works. Yes. Lee is never, never going to leave his breastworks. He's always going to entrench and then fight back. Uh, which Grant, you know, doesn't want. Like, Grant would love to have a Napoleonic war fight right now because he's got more guys, but Lee's not going to give it to him. And so he just keeps going until he gets to Petersburg, and then he stops because he's got a siege. And uh, he can hold him there while Sherman just destroys <laughs> the Deep South. <laughs> and, um, you know, and again, like you're saying with desertions, right? He realizes by the end that the the Lee's army is losing like a regiment a day. You know, not all at once, right. right? But when you add it all up. And so he's going to win that way. And it's just this horrible, bloody mess. But it's also a lot of really brilliant flanking maneuvers because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't quite get where he wants to. He wants to get between Lee and Richmond and he can't quite get that done. But he does manage to keep Lee out in the field for a long time, even if it's still like erected breastworks. It's not in a city, right? And so he can bleed Lee dry. And it's, it's horrible. And what I was really impressed by in terms of the writing of the book is Grant reproduces more of his letters and orders word for word in that section yes. than he does at any other I, point in the book. I actually, so I was just glancing at it cause I was trying to, I was trying to like pick out a, a good thing to, to read from and I, I didn't find anything in particular, but you, you took the words out of my mouth where he, he does seem to stress what he actually wrote in a, in a, in a different way than he does elsewhere. Um, but I, I also think, I mean, I think he's also in this section because of all the casualties, I do think there's a way in which he probably is addressing the criticism and also the um, the foundation of the lost cause that this bloodiness enabled, right? Like I, I think there is a way in which yeah. um, the bloody the bloodiness the you know like everything you're talking about the way in which he won that is sort of part of where the lost cause gains traction, right? Or the, you know that's where they you know like it's like this mentality of like we said it earlier that the the you know the ifs of the Confederacy is what won us the war. And I think there's a way in which he's he's trying to really ground the action of like we did this and we had to do this in these certain ways. And it's it's also I think it's you know, he he's showing you all he's he's in charge of everybody now, right? Like he actually doesn't have an army of his own. He has all the armies, True. right? Yeah, like that's, he leaves yeah. Meade in charge of the Army of the Potomac. And so he's in charge of everybody. And so I think by again, he's showing not telling, right? By just showing us all the orders he was writing and showing us all of the individual maneuvers he has to do again he gets really granular in this right he says you know and uh you know meads meads corps moved here and they found this breastworks here and so they moved around this river like that and they built this pontoon bridge very quickly right. and, you know so on and so forth he's showing what an incredible feat of logistics this actually yeah. was yeah because the, the the myth is that grant just moved south and threw his guys at the enemy and like because even mrs lincoln thought that you know grant's a butcher he's just throwing his men at the army i could do a better job you know and lincoln says well but you're not there, so maybe we'll let Grant do it, you know, because he's always handling his poor... And, of course, Mary Todd Lincoln had a rough yeah, life. I don't did. want to make fun of her too much. But, you know, uh, Lincoln, with his characteristic tact, just says, well, okay, but, you know, we're going to let him keep doing it for now anyway. Uh, and, you know, I think he's really showing that this wasn't just, you know, because I think at this point the myth of him being a butcher is already starting to come around. Yeah. And he's trying to show, like, no, this took a lot of work. I didn't just, like, attack, move south. Of course, he wouldn't say that because that's a StarCraft reference. But, like, you know, I... I this took a lot of work to try to do this and it required the gumption to keep doing it, even though we kept, you know, losing a lot of guys and I didn't beat Lee by 
just mindlessly sending my guys for it. I beat Lee by using my resources and also, you know, it's his fault this was so bloody. He's the one who dug in. Well, you know, and he, he says that without actually right. saying it. And I, I found it, I, I already knew that was the narrative. I mean, I, it's not like I was going to be convinced otherwise, probably, right? But reading the way he does it, again, showing, not telling, just giving you the orders, really convinced me of that. Well, it begs the, or raises the question, I have to say, Bill. Do you think... Do Thank you. you. <laughs> do you think uh, Do you think Grant would play StarCraft? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think Grant would have played at war. Grant didn't even uh, Grant didn't even shoot turkeys. No, I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have I asked it as war. a joke, but actually, no, I, I actually I do think that is part of what is so compelling about him is that um, supposedly blood, the sight of blood made him queasy, made him nauseous, right? Yeah. That he actually couldn't handle blood very well. And um, and I do think, I, I do think that if the book is purposefully like a sort of in- in the moment, he's still famous, but you know, if if he is re- rehabilitating some of his own reputation, I guess what I keep coming back to, it's successful for me. I find it successful. Yeah. Like, like you said, I have no context. I don't, you know, I, I didn't come in with a lot of bias against him. To be fair, you know, but um, but like you just said, the logistics elements. Um, Samet also emphasizes the way in which his time in the Mexican War, doing logistics, right, doing supply line stuff. Yeah. that his experience really really ground into him how armies win or lose based on the foundation the foundational stuff how do we feed soldiers how do we clothe them how do they sleep you know how do we honestly yeah keep them going forward even when they don't want to he does also display a power of memory i think right he's writing yeah. this stuff quickly he's writing it mostly from memory although he has you know apparently his desk was like this chaos of papers that only he, only yeah. he could find things <laughs> but uh but but there's still there's a command within the writing that i feel gives you a sense of his command when he wasn't been in charge right the details matter to him and he knew them um but so the overland campaign uh, so it's bloody, but it's successful, right? I, I don't know if you want to. I, I think you mentioned Cold Harbor. I don't know if you want to. If, if if we should get into anything specific about Cold Harbor. Yeah. So he doesn't talk about it too much, and I. It's been a minute since I've read exactly what happened in other sources. Because and one thing I want to talk about generally, I'll come back to this. I promise. But this is actually not the book to read if you want to really understand these battles properly. Yeah. Um, it's very good for showing what Grant did, but like, there's not like, even in the annotations there are maps of like where everybody was, but like. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about exactly what the other guys did, except when they like just left half their army behind, uh, and then he has a lot of good jokes about that. But he, this is not the book to read if you really want to understand. Also, because it, it doesn't have a lot of drama in it, right? No. So, like yeah. I know from the Chernow and so on, running the batteries at Vicksburg was a huge thing, right? It was it was this very dramatic moment, and he just basically says, "Yeah, I ran the batteries." You know, he doesn't doesn't give into a lot of detail about it, and so it's not the right book to read to really perfectly understand what happened i think oh yeah no i, I was just um, gonna bring it up later when we talked about the book a little more is that i i, I did feel oftentimes confused <laughs> yeah. like, I, like I, I felt convinced but i also felt sort of like oh the the boats matter here it seems like <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it's like particularly in the overland campaign like i was reading it in kind of a daze right because it's so full of detail yes. but it's not actually terribly helpful and then i realized that's the point right like you're not really supposed to get out of this i know exactly where you know W.S. Hancock was standing on this day. The point is, again, this is how much work this was, right? right? And then once I realized that and sort of surfed it, I, you know, I could understand generally what he was saying. He's a very clear writer, right? But there's so much detail about this particular river, and you have to know so much about specific Virginia geography, which I don't. I've been there. Yeah. (laughs) No, you have to let things float past you. You do. 
Yeah, so you have to just kind of surf it. Um, but Cold Harbor, uh, it's an attack. They want to take Cold Harbor because it's a harbor, right? And Lee's entrenched there, and Grant orders an attack that they're too entrenched, and he shouldn't have done it. And then he keeps he sticks with it longer than he should have, and he gets a lot of guys killed. And it's they don't really get anything out of it. Like Grant gets a lot of guys killed throughout that whole campaign, but usually there's something to get right. for it, right? Like it's it's worth it in some sort of horrible bloody way. Yeah. But Cold Harbor's really not worth it. And it's one of the only things where he comes out and says, I regret this attack in the book. He says, I've always regretted the attack at Cold Harbor. And he talks about why, you know, even the attacks on Vicksburg, the siege, when he didn't get that much done, here's why I did that. But Cold Harbor, I shouldn't have done, you know. And he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, right? It's just like a, two paragraphs. But again, in the context of him just mechanically laying out what happened, I think it's really striking, you know, is just, yep, we did this. Here's what happened. Wish we hadn't. You know, and that's, I think it really stands out. Uh, it's interesting he doesn't talk about that in so much with the Battle of the Crater, right. which is the other big stupid thing. Although that's less his fault. I mean, it's his fault because he's in charge, but Ambrose Burnside screwed that up and got fired for it. So, <laughs> but, and he does say it was a complete disaster or something like that, but um, he doesn't say he regrets it in the same way. And it's because it, it should have worked. <laughs> right. Well, so obviously, though, I mean, the Overland campaign in general ends quite well <laughs> yeah um do you think okay so we, we can get into the specifics of that as well but he um he obviously you know accepts lee's surrender at the Appomattox courthouse do you do you want to hit anything before that or do you want to jump to that moment i don't know if there's much more we need to hit right i, don't I mean think we could get into it with a lot of detail but i'm not really ready f- i'm not really prepared to do that i don't I know his campaigns in the West better. I the campaigns of the East are so messy and so confusing that I'm going to have to spend a lot of time well, with that before and so I, I talk I, about it in public. I think also I think this is I think the Lee the Lee moment is a good moment to talk about the literary project going on. Which for for Samet, yeah. she really believes this is a book of deromanticizing, demythologizing as the myth is taking root. Right, that the lost cause myth is in it's happening right it's in the air it's gaining momentum and here is grant sort of he's he's but he's doing more than that right he's also trying to demythologize and for this part actually deromanticize war writing generally right he's not talking about yep. his courageous charge forward or how the men you know swelled behind him he's doing nothing like that um, and she gives you a lot of examples from you know grant's contemporaries who do that who talk about you know the blood in their veins and the men behind them cheering or whatever right um, but I think I, I, the, the, the Lee moment is important because, um, you know, he calls him a man of much dignity, right? He, he's like, you know, yeah. he, there's, there's definitely, um, this respect that goes from Grant to Lee. And like you talked about, they, they talk about, I think he calls it like we, we fell into conversation about old army times. Right. And so I actually am curious, um, to the modern reader, do you think that Grant's project, um, despite all of Samet's emphasis i mean i'm setting you up here but do i mean do you think (laughs) that it doesn't actually contribute to some of the misty romanticism that sort of surrounds the brother versus brother and everyone actually liked each other but they had to fight the war anyway like don't i mean are there moments that you think that you know that he's actually sort of part of that i mean i think so to some i I agree to some extent like he could have just said and then i saw the old bastard and i made him you know surrender right but like I think the thing about the, the dangerous thing about the romanticism is that it's it's a little bit true, right? And that's that's the yeah. problem, right? Is Actually, it's not yeah. completely made up. There were, you know, there was a I forget which one, but there was a guy. There was a Confederate general who, 
Oh, I mean, I don't know. There's a general on one side. It, it's, I think it's mentioned in the book. No, it's from the Ken Burns documentary. Sorry. Who wins a naval battle and goes on the defeated vessel and finds his dying son who was fighting for the other side. Right. Stuff like that happened. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's very important to remember the Civil War was about slavery and that there was the, the bad guys and the, you know, better good guys. Right. Like the Union said a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. I'm not, yeah. You know, but. But I think it's important to keep that in mind, mostly sort of for the reasons Coates is talking about, like, as you're citing Coates talking about, like, who we revere is important for how we move forward, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very much a union guy. I'm very much a, you know, I'll, 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 I'll make some of the Sherman memes, too. You know, do it again, Uncle Billy. <laughs> By the way, I think it's a real shame that Sherman and Sheridan both mysteriously died in 1865 and never did <laughs> yeah. anything ever again. <laughs> Um, you mentioned this before the podcast, and I, 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 did, I forgot that. I didn't even realize that they just disappear from history. Yeah, no, they just mysteriously never died. Never doing and, anything uh, ever again. Never, certainly never went west of the Mississippi and murdered Native Americans. That never happened. Yeah. Um, no, but, uh, you know, so I, I, for sort of political reasons almost, I've sort of, you know, I, I'm a big Union flag waver, but, and, and I do think it's correct for the record. Like, the South did fight for slavery. Yes, no, I think evil. that it's correct. And, you know, like, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't mean that. But, like, if I sometimes emphasize that aspect of it it's for sort of political reasons uh which are just and good i think right but like (laughs) but you know nevertheless yeah brother did fight against brother right all these guys knew each other and shot at each other and it was a horrible loss of life on both sides and you know i think that uh, you can definitely over romanticize that and it has been done and like ken burns does some of that in his documentary for instance but like I think it would be wrong not to acknowledge that these guys all knew each other and that it was a horrible tragedy. Like, it was a horrible tragedy that needed to happen, probably. Yeah, yeah. Right? But, you know, I don't regret it. You know, we got rid of slavery. Well, <laughs> that was good. Uh, well, so, know? actually, but, but what you just said, I think, is actually where I, I that's, a, that's, of course, that's Grant's position, right? His emphasis on the battles, his emphasis on, you know, unconditional surrender, the way in which he is relentlessly, you know, pursuing Lee in the Overland campaign or whatever. I it, 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 you could not read this book and come away thinking um hey, there was just some disagreements in the family. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I but at the same time like I do think he points to a more robust kind of moral transcendence that I think has been abused, right? That this idea that we all just need to get together and yada yada or whatever. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not able to put it into terms that aren't a bumper sticker, I think. But at the same time, I, I do find it meaningful that, like you said earlier, Confederate generals help carry him to his grave. I, I do think that matters because I, I do think that the winning of the war was part of it and then that there had to be something that carried us forward. And I actually think that's related to Tanahase's point, you know, that who we revere is who we become a little bit. And I think Grant, for all of his sins... He, he he really does want to end the war for righteous reasons, and then he wants to find the new way forward, it seems like, which he doesn't talk about. I mean, the book is not about the post-war at all, almost. But his insistence on why the way forward can't include slavery is really convincing. Like, there's one section yeah. which he talks about how um, winning the war for the Confederates would have been far worse than it was for the Union to lose it, you know, if that had happened. And he basically talks about the way that slavery 
you know, kind of flows out into all these other cultural and economic problems. Not only this issue of, you know, um, the dependence on, a, you know, a source of labor that won't be sustainable. Um, he talks actually about, you know, <laughs> the slaves outnumbering and exterminating their masters, right, at one point. But he also, he has this great, really quick cultural consequences of slavery bit where he says this whole poor white trash, which is exactly the phrase he uses, the whole poor white trash mentality of the South comes from, from, from slavery, which slavery necessarily denigrates and degrades labor, right? Only slaves do a certain kind of work. Therefore, that work is only fit for a certain cast of person. Therefore, any whites who do it are no better than slaves, so forth, so on. And it's honestly like it's a really trenchant insightful moment that he just tosses in there and i i think i think that is for me like what makes the book so um rewarding is you really get in the moment arguments that have resounding effects into our moment and i and i, I think um whatever missy romanticism he participates in he, is actually because he knew these guys it wasn't for him building a mythology he knew who lee was and he talks about it like he knew who lee, who lee was he also sent thousands to their death to defeat lee <laughs> Well, that's the thing, like the difference between, you know, somebody else writing about it. like, so, so Grant repeatedly, you know, when he wins a fight, he's not mean to the other guys, right? right. Like he, 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 even despite unconditional surrender, like he doesn't do terrible things to them after he's won, you know, after, after Vicksburg, he paroles them again, because he's thinking a lot of them are just going to go right. home, which I think he's probably right yeah. about, but also, you know, he then, a lot of the forage he'd taken in Mississippi to support his march, he redistributes to the people of the state. Right. Yes. Like he, yeah. he doesn't once he's won, he actually doesn't keep all that stuff. And, you know, it's famously at Appomattox Courthouse. He gets Lee's surrender, which isn't literally unconditional. But I mean, Lee can't do anything, you know, at this point. Right. And he then lets the officers keep their sidearms and he lets everybody take their horses home. Right. Because it's planting season and they're going to need to plant because Sherman has burnt all of their houses. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, and, you know, he's not cruel like that's the you know for all that he's, he's a butcher you know what he's not cruel right he could have been right yes you know? and there were generals on both sides who were but grant actually is never cruel he's just clear-headed about what needs to happen and you know even in the mystery romanticism of the meeting with lee you know he talks about he was a man of great dignity and i was you know, i went there and i felt depressed and right. sad you know I, I felt sad that i'd killed all these guys who've been fighting for a cause they yeah. believed in and then immediately says but it was one of the worst causes for which anyone has ever yes. fought. Like, he never lets them off no. the hook, even when he is participating in some of that romanticism. He's never saying, you know, gosh, I just wish we could have talked it out. He says, no, they did a terrible thing. They committed treason, broke up the union, and wanted to fight to keep their slaves. And so we Honestly, that, that was... And it's sad, but it's what That happened. was one of the, um, I thought, frankly refreshing parts of the notes as well, is, again, you have Samet, who is taught at West Point for, like, 20-odd years, who deals with actual soldiers who actually swear an oath to the country... And I think, again, if you're outside this world, like I grew up kind of in this world a little bit. If you're outside it, it's very easy to make fun of it. But if you're inside of it, like my siblings have classmates who died. You know, maybe the war was unjust, but they knew those kids and they're dead now because of the oath they swore. And I think she, looking at oath, continually calls the Confederates traitors. <laughs> she continually talks about they committed treason to the oaths they swore to uphold the Union. <laughs> and she talks about it because that's an oath people still make, you know? Um, yeah. And I found that, honestly, again, this is why I say, like, there's a there's a invigorating sincerity that I think can be abused. It's how the missing romanticism begins, you know, maybe on a different plane uh, or a different axis. But I, I do think that this... 
continuous, you know, sincerity of taking it, you know, kind of at face value as something that matters without any sort of, you know, I don't know, hand waving or irony. Um, yeah, I, I found it refreshing a lot of times, but also I think that Grant's actual analysis now and then, like when he talks about the slave states, they were happy to be part of the, you know, like you've said earlier, they were happy to use federal resources to expand slavery, <laughs> but they didn't want federal resources to stop slavery. <laughs> you know, that you can't have it both ways. Like that's actually, a, that's a good argument. Do you know what I mean? Like that's actually an argument that is built into a knowledge of the economy and politics of the moment that I find convincing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's also, you know, I think it's, again, the Lost Cause myth starts immediately. Alexander Stevens, vice president of the Confederacy, who wrote at the beginning of the war that their government was founded on the principle that the white man is superior to the black man. And, you know, it's one of the, you know, all this stuff immediately after the war writes about how, oh, it was about states' rights and we just, right. you know, happened to be about slavery. And, you know, so Grant's aware this is going on. Oh, yeah, no, of course. And, you know, he's. And so he's trying to be like, no, that's not true. And it's not his primary purpose. His primary purpose is to write his memoirs. But like he, he clearly says like, no, that's, that's not what this was about. And again, the, the point about the, you know, you can be taken in by the state's rights thing. And I, at some point I, you know, years ago, I think I maybe almost was right. And like a long time ago. Um, but you know, the Fugitive Slave Act destroys that whole theory. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. the, 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 the fact that the South was willing to not only deploy federal power to protect slavery but to use the federal government to force other states to give back runaway slaves in separate courts that were you know full of bs for a lot of reasons like that's that's not states rights man like that's not what that is no well <laughs> that's just using power to protect what you want which of course is what a lot of politics is well but... and you i mean i and well I, yeah i mean there's I, we definitely don't need to get into it but i mean i remember even like i believe it's mississippi um you know statement of segregation it says we're leaving for slavery. <laughs> they all do. All of them do. Literally yeah. every Cato, the Cato Institute did a whole, the Cato Institute did a whole study on every state that left and whether the war was fought for slavery or not. Right. right. You know, the Cato Institute, right. The libertarian yes, yeah. Institute that if there was about states' rights would presumably be okay with it. Every single state when it leaves talks about how the importance of slavery and like white supremacy is every single one. It's just not. It is. No, it is. Yeah. But, but yeah, no. So I, I then, yeah, that's why, I mean, I don't think I, I, I think I had a more personal reaction for different reasons than, you know, Tanahase Coates had, but I, 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 I do think that his reaction, um, you know, in the last paragraph of his blog about this book, he says, it's all just too much. I am a black man and God only knows what Grant would have made of me in that time or this one. Um, I asked myself that question so many times while reading that I might I made myself ill. I don't care to ever hear it again. Grant is splendid to me, and I am sick of keeping score. I I, I don't know if that's how he still feels. Obviously, that was written a while ago. Um, but I guess that is uh, for for different reasons. Th that's sort of where I landed on Grant as well. Like I I'm wary of hagiography. I'm wary of any kind of national mythologizing that you know sets up these and you know, my childhood parlance, false idols, my current parlance, false idols. But, <laughs> but, but truthfully, you know, I, uh, I, I, that's, I, I found, I found that resonated with me when I finished this book as well. Like here was a man, and again, I think the conditions of him writing it matter. Like here was a man dying who wanted to save his family from destitution, who failed at everything except for the most important things, you know, and there is a transcendent 
hope in that I think where he was bad at so much <laughs> you know and yeah. he failed so much I mean we haven't even talked about one of the worst moments of like anti-semitism from the government in the US history one historian called yeah. it um, this famous order where he says all the Jews gotta leave and he doesn't say traitors which is, we'll, we can get into more but like he basically has this problem with commercializing and he, he just names the Jews as the problem not great yeah. <laughs> Um, no, it's it's a, it's it's actually maybe the worst thing. Like no, most it might, unqualified worst. It thing It might he be ever the worst did. thing he did. Yeah, know, some of his Native American policy is really bad, but it's very messy. And so I'm not, you know, General Order Eleven, as you say, it's when he's in charge of the uh, Department of the Tennessee, I think, and he just there is a real problem going on where Northern Prophet people are coming down, buying cotton from the South and selling it up right. north without following the rules. He doesn't like it. They can do it at all, but they can. He doesn't like it. His dad comes down with, I think it's two or three Jewish businessmen to try to do this. He's mad about it. There's a few other Jewish people, but like, it's not, that's not, we're not, we're talking about a class of people of, you know, a hundred people or whatever of whom five are Jewish. Do you right. know what I mean? And Grant, for whatever reason, decides that this means the Jews are breaking the rules. And so he kicks them all out of the department. Nothing really happens. There's about one family that gets moved out of a place and then gets to come back. Lincoln hears about it and two weeks later says no, no and no. rescinds the order. <laughs> and, and he's not too mean no. to Grant because Lincoln was very tactful, yeah. but he's like, you can't, I think you were trying to do this and maybe, but no, you can't do this. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a terrible thing he yeah. did. Absolutely no justification for it. No excuse. You know, we can understand why it happened maybe, but not, ex- not excuse it. He also spent the rest of his life repenting about it. Right. And... Like, it's not in the book, right? Because he doesn't mention General Order 11 in the book either. He'll notice. Well, so I, well no, to my knowledge of it comes from the footnotes, right? Where actually I was going to say yeah. more credit to Samet, which, which honestly, we, we almost haven't talked enough about Samet, who I think was – I love yeah. this edition. I would have loved the memoirs without her in, interjections, but I, I did come to love her stuff actually more and more as I read it. And um, No, she's tremendously she's important to really understand. incredible, I think. Yeah. But also she doesn't let him off the hook. She says actually his no. literary – precision condemns him because if he wanted to say commercializers or traders he would have said it you know what i mean he wouldn't have said the jews yeah. is not just like a lazy stand-in he's too precise everywhere else to get off the hook which i thought was that was good you know yeah because i mean it's true i mean apparently people were talking about you know we're using jew as a shorthand for unscrupulous merchant which is you know great uh, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but you know some people tried to say oh he that's what he meant but like no you're right sam it says no there's no way that's what yeah. he meant the guy doesn't use the wrong words so i think i mean um, I th- and i think so yeah i, I definitely i there's definitely parts of the book i fogged over i mean i i don't i couldn't tell you a lot about ri- rivers in virginia that i should after yeah. this book but i do there's something so forceful in his own resolve his resolve both during the war which even when you fog over like you said you see you see the resolve he has to pursue lee to fight this bloody war that you know the kind of logistics and the purpose that went behind it and then also the reserve itself to write the book and also the fact that like here's a book explicitly written for money you know explicitly yeah. to gain profit for his family as he is dying and it's really good it's a really, really good book, and I think again, it's it's I don't know, it's hard not to fall into at least like petite hagiography because um, you kind of reveal your character when you do that, right? I'm going to do this thing for money, <laughs> and you still end up writing well and writing movingly, and also kind of writing definitively about one of the more important things that's happened in American history. Um, but also, I do think it's a testament how many different people like this memoir. You know what I mean? Like it is yes. a crazy <laughs> range of people. Like the 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 the, uh, the you know the book cover, the blurbs in the back. It includes Ta-Nehisi Coates and General Petraeus. 
<laughs> yep. When have they ever been quoted together on a book? Do you know what I mean? And anything, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, so, but I, I think that is also the power is this, you know, that that there is something powerful happening literarily, which I think we've gotten at a little bit. Um, that I think, you know, I, I felt for sure. I I don't know. I I I'm really glad I read it. Uh, I you know again I already loved Grant going in. I wasn't that was unlikely to change my mind, but. Um, it was really good to spend this much time with his words, even though he is, you know, he does sort of obfuscate his own self as much as he can. It, it comes through with all the stylistic choices he's making. Like yes. you're saying, this is absolutely a, you know, the, the literary choices he's making tell us more about him than even his actual moments when he describes what he was feeling. And it's, it's subtle and it's really effective and I love him. <laughs> but in terms of like hagiography, you know, I definitely, it could fall into that trap, but I love Grant because he screwed up so much. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I love Grant because he repeatedly screwed up and kept going and made more mistakes and then kept going and tried. And you know, the, the feeling I get reading both this book and his biography by Chernow and everything else I've read about him is he was always honestly trying to do the right thing. And he frequently didn't right? like he yeah. made a number yeah. of mistakes, both tactical mistakes and, like, moral mistakes. Again, there's no excuse for General Order 11. I'm not pretending there is, right? And his Native American policy is messy, but there's definitely bad stuff in it. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah. there's stuff in it that we can say, oh, this is this is better than the other guys, which is almost certainly true. But, you know, he was president when Custer died, right? right. Like, that yeah. was he was president at that point. And so, like, I, I, I'm not confused about the fact that he made a lot of mistakes. Right. But I you get the sense from reading as, as much about him as I have that he's always honestly trying his best. And, you know, he beat the Confederacy and smashed the Klan for a generation. And I don't know, that's better than most of us do. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, I actually, this is where I think that we've joked, uh, you know, off the podcast, of course, endlessly, but even a little bit here about, you know, kind of becoming civil war dads. I mean, you're already, I think, uh, an honorary, maybe civil war dad. Um, on your way to earning that doctorate in Civil War dattery. Um, mm. <laughs> but I, I do think all that... All kids. That's the only thing I actually need. <laughs> anyway, <go ahead. laughs> you know, dads come in all shapes and sizes. <laughs> when you love the Civil War enough, they just grant you that right. Um, that title, I mean. <laughs> but um, No, but I, I do think that there is... There is something... Maybe even dangerously, but importantly wholesome about some of the some of the things you can take away from a, a book like this. And I, I think one of it is that moral rectitude and, you know, honestly, moral strength matters, right? That there is a way in which um, Grant, if he got stuff right, it was because he was humble at the right moments, not seeking promotion. And actually, I'm like almost superstitious, right? Like the, the footnotes at least yeah. talk about that he was basically superstitious of even trying to get a promotion, you know? Um, so he was weird. It wasn't just moral. He was also a little weird to be fair, <laughs> neurotic maybe, but, <laughs> but, but that there is, that there is something kind of inexplicably, um, useful, if not, you know, much, much more important virtuous about having these moral characteristics because they actually do scale up, right? That's almost the whole, if you want to, you know, and this is dangerous territory, I think in some ways, but if you were going to make an argument from Grant's life, and this is true of Lincoln too, who failed at a lot of things, you know, different guy. I don't know as much about him, but I, I, I do think that that is almost the, 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 the kind of dad through line that people kind of want to make fun of, even as they embrace it, is that there's a way in which there's these moral kind of decisions, this moral temper scales up, right? That you are humble when you're 
failing with your, you know, dad's store and your kids and whatever else. And that humility married to resolve, it turns out it shows up again when you're in charge of the entire army, you know, like that's a lifetime of habit that reaps reward. And so like what basically what I'm saying is like this book builds character. <laughs> yeah. But, no, but I, I think, agree. you know, but like that's the <laughs> ultimate dad thing, right? Is like build character. But I think there's a way in which this wars of all kind testify to the importance of character um, in a way that doesn't feel cheesy or cheap, you know, because men died trying to figure this shit out or stuff out. Whoops. Beep. Well, uh, Grant famously didn't like swearing, although he said he would forgive it if the person who was swearing was trying to lead a team of Mexican mules in one of my favorite <laughs> That's sites, right. He, says, so. he, does, <laughs> he does say that. I will, so I, I've, I've lathered way too much, but I, I guess just one, one element that I, I wanted to highlight of the annotations is I think it can be tiresome if you're not up for it. But Samit doesn't just say, hey, you know, when Grant talks about people being on watch and how they fall asleep, you know that's 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 a that's a theme throughout literature. You could see it in Julius Caesar's memoirs and in Tim O'Brien's Vietnam stuff. She might say that, but then she will also quote from that <laughs> for sometimes one or two pages. Um, yeah. And actually, I think that I, I I found that I really liked that to be honest. And I think part of this book appealed to me because I think there's a way in which war um, it it takes you out of time, right? People talk about being in battle and becoming like kind of like they they're taken out of their humanity, like they just become you know you know fight or flight is the common kind of way of saying that, but you, it's more than that, right? You're kind of taken out of your humanity. You see stuff being done, and Samet talks about this too, right? That like people would lose themselves in the savagery of war, and then as soon as the battle's done, you bury the dead you just killed and you cry about it, right? That's common yeah. throughout all time basically and i actually did i did find that element of the book but especially of the annotations really moving because there is this way in which at least combined with samet's notes grant's memoir does that he captures sort of the timeless horror and the timeless pressure of war and um as someone who's had family go to war i do think that um it's really hard to get that on paper you know, there's a lot of war literature right now that is trying to do that. And a lot of the war literature after this time period comes from, like, you know, soldiers on the ground, poets in World War One in England. You know, Tim O'Brien was himself just like he was just some guy, a grunt, right? So a lot of the poetry and, and literature after this comes from that, that perspective. And it was interesting to see it at the level of the general, you know, not at the level of the guy in the field of the horse, but at the level of making the decisions that a lot of that, a lot of that kind of continuity of war in the, in the worst sense is kind of present at every level of decision-making, um, which was good. I mean, again, it's, it's powerful. I, I think honestly, like I think the, I think the further I am from this book, the more I'm going to like it. I agree. It's kind of overwhelming to read it for, I finished it a couple of days ago and my first thought was like, whoo, I'm glad I'm through it, you know, so true, <laughs> but a little bit more because it's long. Um, no. But you know, being, <laughs> A few days past it, I'm yeah, I agree. It's 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 really something. Yeah, it really is. So I just have a few small things. I know it's less dramatic than ending on the point we just did, but I there's some fun stuff Let's I want to mention. It. Just a few quick fun things. Uh, one in a note, uh, the in the Mexican American War, the 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 American soldiers put on theatrical productions, and U.S. Grant almost played Desdemona in a production <laughs> of Othello. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I can't. That's very funny. <laughs> I, uh, he didn't actually. I think they actually hired an actress. But I just, uh, wow, what a what a funny thing. Um, 
he's got a lot of really good jokes. Uh, he, he mostly isn't particularly mean to other generals. Um, he's really mean to uh, Pillow for running away from Donaldson. Yes, but he is. He's, uh, mostly he's not that mean to other generals, even the Confederates. Usually the meanest thing he says is, I've never been able to understand the wisdom of this move, <laughs> right? But he has a couple of pretty good jokes. Um, he has a great joke about uh, Jeff Davis's military genius, where he says, you know, Jeff Davis... R- r- removed Joe, Joey, Joseph Johnston from the army that was fighting Sherman in Atlanta uh, and replaced him with John Bell Hood, who is very aggressive uh, and in dumb ways. <laughs> he actually gets more guys killed at the Battle of Franklin than Grant did at Cold Harbor. Right? So on the subject of discussions of butchery, yeah. right? Uh, and didn't get anything from it and then got annihilated by the Rock of Chickamauga immediately afterwards at Nashville because George Thomas is the best. But anyway... Um, he replaces Johnston with Hood because Davis wants something really dramatic to happen in Atlanta to beat Sherman, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> and as Grant says, the only way the South is going to win this is by stalling. Yeah. And Johnston's the guy for that, not Hood. And he says, Jeff Davis also often came to the Union's aid via his military genius, <laughs> which is very good. Um, he talks about John Bell Hood moving up to fight George Thomas being exactly what we'd, he would have ordered him to do if he'd been in charge of both armies, which is also really good. Um, uh, he, I like the way he... One of the only generals he does single out other than Pillow is Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is the worst person in the world. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest was a Confederate cavalry commander who was very good at that, but was also a murderous lunatic and became the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. And he's a very romantic figure to a lot of Confederates who like to forget about that stuff. Uh, Neo-Confederates, I mean. Uh, Shelby Foote, actually, in the Ken Burns documentary, says that he's one of the two great geniuses of the war, the other being Abraham Lincoln. And I almost threw something through my screen. Because in addition to being later the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, he also massacred a bunch of black soldiers at Fort Pillow. And I say massacred because I don't mean they were in combat. They'd surrendered, and then Forrest's men killed all of them. Um, And it was bad. And Grant... When he gets there, even though he wasn't there, he can't help from bringing it up. And he just quotes from Forrest's original report. And I think one of the most, I mean, I think it's a really effective and damning way of reminding everybody what a monster yeah. Forrest was. Yeah. Because he just says, I'll just let Forrest tell it. And he talks about, you know, the water being thick with blood and so on. And then he moves on. Because, again, he's never going to spend more than a few paragraphs doing something like this. But I appreciated that Grant took time to talk about the massacre at Fort Pillow. No, I, well. I, it's one of the worst things. Well, I, I think that he is. He's unwit like it's where almost you would like you'd almost attribute it to like a modern sentiment that he is sort of I I, I guess that's what that's what's fascinating with the whole lost cause myth is that it is so immediate that it feels like some of the same arguments we're having it it is sometimes bizarre to hear Grant making the same arguments you know what I mean? like I don't have to put words in their mouth about why they were doing things they wrote it down themselves like I feel like I've I've had that yeah. argument do you know what I mean like. And to see Grant having it is always sort of a whiplash moment of like you, you too, huh? That's that's wild. That's <laughs> wild because <laughs> they're still around. <laughs> totally irrelevant uh, big read cast thing. Again, I watched the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War, uh, partly for this podcast, partly because I I'm becoming a Civil War right. buff, as we've said. Uh, and he has he has these different people, famous actors do the voice like read these letters from people, right? It's like Morgan Freeman reads all of Frederick oh, Douglass' okay. speeches yeah, okay. and. Uh, Arthur Miller is William Tecumseh Sherman, by the way, which is really interesting. Uh, but when you say Arthur Miller, 
Yeah, I mean the I mean the playwright. I mean the Crucible. I mean Arthur Miller. He voices William Tecumseh okay. Sherman. His voice does. His voice. He sounds like W. Morgan Shepard. He has this incredibly oh, gravelly really? voice. It's 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 a great casting oh, choice. Wow. I had no idea that's what Arthur Miller sounded it's like. Werner like. Herzog um, having a great voice. It's not fair, you know. Yeah, no, really great. Uh, so it's really fun. Like Jeremy Irons reads some British stuff. Uh, Sam Waterston reads Abraham Lincoln. But in a fun thing that only matters to the big read cast, do you know who reads Benjamin Butler, the 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 general that Grant's mad at a lot? I, I, no, I Studs Turkle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we we'll never get rid of that guy. He did everything. He's uh, he so somehow much fun. he somehow made it into um uh the Gene Wolfe podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I know. He's everywhere. Uh, so it was just, I, I was scrolling, through, like, the credits were rolling, and I had paused it, because I was like, oh, cool, like, Kurt Vonnegut did some, that's so wild. Stud Sturkle? <laughs> that's so wild. So anyway, that's not about this book, but I thought that was fun. Um, he has a, Grant has a great joke about when he's trying to clerk for George McClellan, like, he'd, he'd been at best an indifferent clerk in the past when he had to do that, because he had never had anywhere to put a paper except in his pocket or in the hands of a more competent clerk, <laughs> yes. which is a really good joke. Yeah, I did like that. Um, but I actually want to end with a quote from Samet. Uh, so Samet did a really good job, as we've said. We haven't talked about her enough, but we're running really long. Um, I do think sometimes when she throws an entire Henry the Fourth uh, speech, it might be a little. How too dare much. you? Uh, Henry the Fourth is always <laughs> relevant. Uh, yeah, it's just it's a lot, particularly in the first half of the book. You're like, trying, no, there are whole trying pages to get where I know you're, you're trying to get into the pros of Grant. It can be hard. So I had to, and I think we talked about this before the podcast. I had to stop reading her notes, read the chapter all the way through from Grant, and then go back and read the notes, and then it was much better. Same. But like the first three or four chapters, when I was trying to read contemporaneously, there were there are pages when there are three lines of Grant and then a massive footnote that extends <laughs> yeah. two pages in like point eight font. True. I was like, okay. There's a lot. I mean, it's what I want, but good lord. Uh, and again, she did a great job. This, this, uh, you know, putting it in context, even from somebody like me who spent more time with this, all the reminders of like this prose is shocking for 1885. You know what I mean? Like, and all the, all the, yes. it was really, really good. But she has a little piece at the end about Grant's tomb and about how we remember Grant that I thought was dynamite, personally. Um, and she talks about all the. Uh, you know, portrayals of Grant and like the Mr. Deeds movie, whatever the subtitle is, where the guy wants to go see Grant's tomb and talks about how he loves Grant, but also he's sad about Robert E. Lee's broken heart and so on, right? And I just, because this is my project, I want to end with the last line of the book, which is, if therefore when we visit Grant's tomb, we remember Lee and his broken heart, we end up forgetting what actually broke it and what Grant's victory secured was the emancipation of four million people. So I wanted to be sure to say that part. No, that's perfect actually and i i think i think that brings us to the end bill i think there's no better w way to end that to be honest i did just sort of make an executive decision to end the podcast <laughs> i hope that's okay <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been talking for like three hours i think <laughs> i think we're good yeah uh so joel thank you so much for going through this book with me i enjoyed it i really enjoyed talking with you, you about too it. bill i hope it was fun uh we haven't decided what we're reading next because we're busy uh but we'll let you guys know and uh uh, of course, we'll do our year-end review podcast probably in early January. That's usually what we do. And I'm a few books behind this year, so I'm going to use that time, I think. But we'll, we'll do that next, and then we'll let you all know what we're reading in March of 2023. But this is our last regular episode of our fifth year of podcasting. So uh, thank you guys all so much for sticking with us for all these years. And, and Joel, as I've said many, many times, thank you so much for doing this project with me. I always really look forward Same to it. Same, Bill.
Same. We'll talk soon, buddy. Yep. Have a good night, all right? Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.